Welcome to Tentpole Trauma, the podcast where we look at movies that came with hype and high hopes, but left with crushing disappointment, either critically, at the box office, or both. Freed from the weight of expectations, we seek to examine these underperformers under a new light, parsing through the good, the bad, and everything in between with the hopes of gaining a better understanding as to why they failed to find their audience. Warning, there will be spoilers, so if you haven't seen the movie that we're discussing today, I suggest you stop the podcast and go watch it. Then when you come back and listen, you'll get more out of the discussion. On this episode, we discuss 1982's Blade Runner. Sebastian and I am here with Chris. Good evening, Sebastian. And Troy. Hey. Nobody's going to do home again, home again, jiggity jig. <laughs> well, that was my homage, but without being super, super nerdy yet. I caught it. I caught it. Well, if you haven't guessed from uh, Chris's intro, we are discussing the 1982 film Blade Runner, directed by Ridley Scott and starring Harrison Ford. Like a lot of movies that we discuss on this podcast, I saw Blade Runner in its original theatrical run. I remember it being a movie that I was pretty excited to see, and I think I saw it with my parents, and I was pretty blown away even at first. I didn't quite get it all, obviously, because it's a pretty complex film thematically, but I liked it right away, and the sort of initial experience of seeing it was kind of a bit of a mind blower for me because I was 12 years old, so I was just old enough to start thinking about movies and um, entertainment a little deeper than I had before. So it really resonated with me, and I was sort of shocked when it turned out the world didn't really embrace Blade Runner, at least not initially. Since then, obviously, it has gone on to become a classic of science fiction, but upon its initial release, it didn't do well at the box office, and it didn't even really do that well with critics initially. Chris, what are your first experiences with Blade Runner? Well, I wasn't cool enough to see it in the theater like you, but... Um, Few were. I did end up seeing it on home video I, I, whenever that was released. You know, things didn't come out for years afterwards, so maybe it was... 85 or something like that. So I was a little bit younger. I was like 10. And my brother and a friend of his 
Got it. And it was already like gaining a, a cool rep then. I think they were like, oh, there's this really cool, challenging sci-fi movie that Harrison Ford's in called Blade Runner. It's supposed to be really dark. We started watching it. I was totally blown away. And then during the scene when Harrison Ford and Rachel meet at his apartment, my brother's older brother's friend turned to him and went, hey, do you think they're going to do it? I think we should send Chris like to bed because this this might get a little little nasty here. And they sent me to bed and I, I had to oh. like like watch it like the next morning, the first thing I did after waking up it was like, so what happened in Blade Runner? Can I watch it? And, and my brother's like, yeah, sure, it was fine. Watch it. And then I ran immediately to the DVD or to the uh, to the VCR, put it in and then just like watched the whole thing again and was totally blown away. And it was it's, you know, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. Troy, what is your experience with Blade Runner? I was too young when it came out in the movie theater. Uh, I was probably nine. This was one of those movies that was a hard R, so I was not allowed to see it. But I remember my dad saw it, and he, re he really liked it. He was kind of talking about it when he came home. But I kind of saw this movie and Alien together, like when I was finally old enough, which was probably just like another year or two after you know Blade Runner was on, on home video. I kind of, like, I remember here there was a lot of buzz about Blade Runner was sort of gaining traction. People were talking about how cool it was and everything. So um, by the time I finally saw it, I, again, I was like kind of too young to grasp, sort of like you, Sebastian, to grasp the sort of the, the deeper inner workings of the story. But visually, it totally blew me away. Are either of you guys familiar with the source material, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick? I read it a long time ago. Like when I was um, probably in junior high, specifically because I wanted to read Blade Runner and I can't remember any of it. I'm not the biggest uh, Philip K. Dick fan. It's, his ideas are great. He's one of those writers that uh, his concepts are amazing. And then his writing style uh, kind of sometimes struggles to support the storytelling. Chris, what are your thoughts on the source material? I think it's a, it's key to the whole thing, you know, I mean, even if uh, Hampton Fancher threw out a lot of, you know, the actual plot mechanics, I think what the paranoia and that sort of, I remember reading it too and being like, oh, I'm going to read the, like, the novelization of Blade Runner. I'm going to read exactly what happens. And it's not at all what happens. There's so many other different things. There's their mood organs. There, It's all about the animals and it's all about him trying to like, you know, buy a real animal so he can care for something in this world. And that, you know, the class structure is about having like a fake animal versus real animal. And so there were so many ideas in there that didn't make it into the movie. And I was kind of blown away by how different it was. But it also gave me that weird sort of like icky feeling, you know, and I was like a little kid reading this and being like, oh, I, I don't like this. This makes me feel like like I'm a paranoid speed freak like, like Philip K. Dick was, and, and I was not ready for it. But I, I, the more I watch the movie, the more I think that the further away they stray from his paranoid source material, you know, the worse it gets. And, you know, you need it to make a, like Troy is saying, you know, it, you can't just port it over word for word, obviously, but that's one of the faults of, of 2049 is is that the further away you get from the, his source material, I think it, it, it's a fault. Yeah, I read the book a couple of years ago, and I was definitely struck by how different it was. I knew enough about it to not expect it to be completely similar, but 
the thing that I remember about reading it was it just didn't really feel like the same vibe. It's noir, but it's kind of more detective gumshoey type of noir. Yeah. But like you're saying with all those different crazy things, it's really about him trying to get a pet for his wife who mm-hmm. hates him and stuff. It's more depressing, I feel like. You know, like he, one of the other Blade Runners tell him, he's like, just sleep with her and then kill her. And then you're right. like, what? That's insane. Like, that's the advice that a fellow Blade Runner gives him when he falls in love with a replicant. He's like, just sleep with her, then shoot her. And I'm like, wow, that was, there's some crazy stuff in there. But he did admit that, like, coming up with an android that didn't know he was an android was his sort of, you know, one peak original idea he ever had. I think it's accurate that, like, that's the idea that, it over to Blade Runner and that is that endures is that is that idea and I remember him saying like you know writers have all these ideas not all of them are completely original that was my one and I'm like you're right now I was a huge fan of Alien as a kid so I remember Ridley Scott's name being one of the first director's names that I recognized so when Blade Runner came out and I remember you know seeing a bit about it in Starlog magazine I was actually kind of excited for it considering I was 12 years old at the time and wasn't really steeped in movie culture I was aware that there was going to be a movie called Blade Runner the guy that directed Alien had directed it so I was actually excited that it was the same guy and I remember while seeing the movie I kind of would consider this what was going on at earth during the time of alien like i thought they were kind of in the same universe but what are your thoughts on ridley scott as a director troy um first i just wanted to say i i that same universe between alien and blade runner definitely i was on board with that as well as that film outland yeah so good yeah i was gonna say outland fit into that and i think outland came out in 81 so it it had already been out so you had alien outland and blade runner all together and these were all like very rated r very adult science fiction and very moody but anyways yeah i i loved this universe that these were set in and ridley scott's name i think i was i was aware that it was the same director i kind of loved this this area of adult r-rated genre films that was happening right around this this time it was it was struggling against the star wars template that was taking over and it's sort of like the last gasp of these dramatic genre films that were really expensive and really moody and and very much adult. Uh, What are your thoughts on Ridley Scott, Chris? Yeah, well, Blade Runner put him on the map as far as I'm concerned. You know, after this, you're like, who the hell directed this? And so you want to see every single movie of his. And it was kind of funny because, you know, I think I tried to, you know, watch Legend and was disappointed and then... 1492, I think, came out. And then I'm trying to think of what other movies came in between this and Black Rain. And like Black Rain, honestly, was the only other movie that I remember seeing post Blade Runner and being like, it's Ridley Scott and he's going to Japan and it's going to be just like Blade Runner. And we got so excited to to see it and it wasn't quite the same. And then, you know, he went on to Gladiator and all those great movies. But yeah, I mean, he's an outstanding director, definitely has his quirks and, you know, is primarily a, a, a visual director, but of course he's got all the other goods, but the constant criticism is that, you know, he might not be great with story or actors or emotions or things like that, but he can, you know, make a set look incredible. And this 
this movie just shines and it's it's his best movie as far as I'm concerned. Well, we talked about it in one of our other podcasts about how the thing for me with sci-fi, why I love it so much, and the thing about sci-fi movies that captures me so much is when a director can make me believe in the world. And I feel that Ridley Scott probably greater than any other director in the genre absolutely except maybe arguably kubrick made me believe in this world and i think that was kind of the thing about blade runner that really kind of blew my mind Mm -hmm. as a kid was you know alien was one thing but then there was this and this took place on earth and it was like this is what the future could really look like and it really felt like something that was possible so it kind of blew my mind in that way Now, the screenplay, as we mentioned, was written by Hampton Fancher. It was also kind of co-written by David Peoples, but I guess Hampton Fancher came back. Fancher wrote like an early draft, like in the mid-70s. So this had been kind of kicking around forever. And the name Blade Runner is not from Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. It was actually from another script. Wasn't it a William Burroughs novel? Wasn't it? It, It wasn't a William Burroughs novel. It was a William Burroughs treatment for alan e norse's novel the blade runner but like all they did was take the name blade runner from it right i always thought blade runner was just in do androids dream of electric sheep so i think when i was reading it i was like where's the term blade runner when are they gonna say blade runner (laughs) but it's one of those names that is just so enigmatic and perhaps it didn't do a lot to sell the movie to people at that time. However, I do think it's really evocative and really an incredible name. And in my mind, I was like, because they call what Deckard is, the kind of police officer he is, a blade runner, that just evoked like, ooh, he like cuts them apart or something. Like, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> Totally. So I always <laughs> did love the name, even though it was one of those names that was like, what does that mean? And it, it, I thought it was interesting that it didn't even come from the book. With the red typography, it's just seared into my brain as that, you know, hard rated R blood blade runner. And it just seemed like the coolest thing ever. Yeah. It's a great title. Hampton also wrote it basically as a, uh, you know, as like a play with like took place all indoors. And it wasn't until Ridley Scott got into it that it expanded into that world. So that's like kind of a key thing that he he came on because until Ridley Scott came on, I feel like there was supposedly no exteriors in, in the in the script. And Ridley Scott forced Hampton Fancher to say, what's outside the window? Whereas Hampton was just concerned with just the interplay between the characters. Well, and also Ridley Scott was coming off of Dune. He was one of the long list of directors that had gotten caught in the Dune (laughs) maelstrom of that time. So that wasn't working out. And he was like, I just want to make a friggin' movie. And, you know, he was in a sci-fi sort of headscape, I guess. So he brought it over to this. So this is yet another classic late 70s early 80s sci-fi movie that has benefited from dune not happening (laughs) sebastian are you a a ridley scott fan i would say so yeah like you do you like other films besides alien and blade runner i do uh I really love Gladiator. It's one of my favorite manly man movies. Alien is my favorite movie of all time. This is probably in my top five. Yeah, I mean, of course, he's made a lot of movies that I don't really care for. I mean, like you, I was excited for Legend when it came out. And then when I saw it, I was like, oh, 
this is like a really beautiful chore to sit through. Yeah. That's how I felt about Legend too. <laughs> yeah. And I don't, I wasn't like crazy about White Squall or anything he did in the 90s. But I mean, I'm always interested to see what he's doing. And I've enjoyed quite a few of his movies over the years. I like the director's cut of Kingdom of Heaven. I like historical epics. So I like when he goes there which he does a lot, obviously. They're not always successful, but at least, again, like I'm saying, he makes you believe in the world. I feel that he really creates environments that feel really lived in. And I agree that he's not the world's greatest director in terms of scripts and and actors, but if I want to feel transported, Ridley Scott can almost always bring me there. Yeah, it's so tactile. Like yeah, and Alien, both Alien and Blade Runner, uh, those both those films are so much a, a meditation on just being in those environments. Yeah, like in Alien, you're just lingering on the Nostromo for for like forty minutes before they even go to the the planet. And I love that. Yeah, and I love I love that about his stuff. And I feel like a lot of his stuff has that kind of quality where it's about being in the environment. Yeah, Gladiator Two with the you know the wheat fields and the the dirt and all that stuff. You feel that as well. But Blade Blade Runner specifically, I think culturally, what it has become is an artistic reference. Huge. Yeah, he he was kind of the perfect person to to bring this into pop culture and it's never stopped like people still are trying to do art direction that is referencing Blade Runner it's still a thing it's it's never become passe and it's not bringing this it's like it's Ridley Scott like everything that you're talking about that really lives on is Ridley Scott yeah he and and the DP Jordan Krenowitz, you know, they brought it to life. They used the smoke. They used all the 80s tricks that ended up in commercials and and whatnot. And I feel like they just... Music videos. Yeah, they set the template for all that stuff. And all, you know, if it might not have, like, blown up worldwide or with, like, Mom and Pa in Oklahoma, but every art student was like, Blade Runner is the greatest cinematic achievement and it looks so good. And so many people in like the art world and the fashion world, I feel like took from this. And so you see, that's why the it's permeated the culture so much is because like all the cool people who made stuff like that <laughs> were influenced by Blade Runner. Its cultural footprint is massive. And in yes. terms of science fiction cinema, I think it's pretty much unprecedented. 2001 in that, yeah. I even think Blade Runner has in some ways surpassed 2001 in terms of like how many other movies it's directly influenced. Right. Well, 2001 also was trying to be this very accurate depiction of, of the future. Yeah. Whereas Blade Runner was absolutely a fantasy. It was all just invented and it was like a mishmash of styles from the forties. And I feel like Sid Mead, you know, always made everything very functional and, and Ridley Scott was very adamant on making stuff not so unbelievable that you couldn't do it. You know, that's not what I mean. I mean, like the style of Blade Runner is like bringing in the dress you know, costumes are from the 40s specifically. Mm -hmm. It's this amalgamation of different styles, the music they listen to and the mo the moodiness and sort of like mixing in old Los Angeles from the 40s because it was trying to be this neo-noir. It's kind of like Star Wars because, you know, they basically took two different sources and then meshed them with sci-fi. That is, you're you're right though, it's crucial to to the vibe of it and, and they do it spectacularly. Agreed. 
All right, so let's get into Blade Runner. The uh, movie is uh, brought to us by... The Lad Company. The Lad Company. Yeah. There's this like green tree, and then it says, so... and Run Run Shaw, which I believe is the Shaw Brothers producer. You know, for the longest time, too, I, I had not seen another movie by the Lad Company. And just yesterday I watched Body Heat and it was like ah. the only other one that had the Lad Company. I think you're right. Yes, I think I had the same reaction where I was like, that's the Blade Runner logo. Oh my God, there it is. Like, oh my God, the, the little digital tree. Yes, and it and it looks so of the time. It's so 80s and it just yeah. reminds me of those like high definition Alpine stereos that were all green LEDs. <laughs> yeah, totally. And I was like, yes, this is the future. This is Blade Runner. And even just from that first logo, Blade runner is giving you the vibe yeah but for the longest time that that logo only meant blade runner right. and nothing else yeah so yeah we get the titles and like chris said uh, we get the title blade runner in red which is really evocative and sort of sets the tone and we get a sort of uh text intro that explains to us that you know we're in the future the future world of 2019 so now it, we're in a period piece and you know the world is run basically by the Terrell Corporation who have made these replicants, which are a new type of artificial human being that they use to do off-world work because now we're in space doing stuff in space, but we need these artificial humans to do it. But a bunch of them have revolted, and so now we need these police officers called Blade Runners to round them all up when they get back to Earth and to quote-unquote retire them meaning kill them. So that's our basic sort of setup. And then we go right into our first shot of a cityscape. And I don't think there's any other first shot of a movie that had a bigger impact on me as a person than this shot, because it is just one of the most incredible looking future cityscapes i kind of feel like it's the future cityscape to beat all future cityscapes like all other yeah, future absolutely. cityscapes will be compared to this now there's many versions of blade runner uh this was released in 1991 or 92 and it actually played in the theater that i worked at at the time so i would watch it over and over again the director's cut yes under the yes. influence of marijuana a lot of the times so i had a second experience with Blade Runner where I really, really became a fan of it because mm -hmm. I experienced again. And in the director's cut, they got rid of the narration and stuff, which we will talk about. But now since 2007, we've been living with the final cut in which Ridley Scott has gone in and cleaned up some effects and stuff. And there's like a couple of extra shots, but it's pretty much the same thing as the uh, director's cut. But in the final cut, this cityscape looks even better, just that the way he's cleaned it up digitally or whatever, it looks friggin' amazing. I went and watched the theatrical for, for this podcast. Me, me too. Again. And I and I thought that it was like, oh man, I gotta I'm gonna watch the theatrical. I know it's so bad. But it wasn't as bad as it's been sort of stigmatized to be. I agree. I agree. You know, the narration's terrible, but that was added on later, as everybody knows. And I really thought that the theatrical was going to be this terrible film for how hard the critics came down on it. And it's not. The theatrical is really solid. I think there's a, a few different editing sequences in the, the ending, of course. But, you know, it was all these things done really by the, the producers. Yeah, the director's cut 
which you said came out in 91 that gave this it was almost like another movie coming out yeah it gave it a, a whole new life it gave it a whole new fan base you know that started out as a mistake they were supposed to show the 1982 theatrical cut in san francisco and then some guy actually ran the wrong reel and everyone lost their minds because they're like what is this this doesn't have the narration oh my god and then and then it exploded from there and then there was like this big demand for the release of, of I never heard that Ridley Scott's director's cut. And it was kind of funny because being a child for me, uh, seeing the theatrical cut, I needed the hand holding with the narration. And, you know, it was the first, my version of it, like uh, Steve say has said, you know, it's hard to disassociate yourself from like the first version you hear of a song or the first version of a movie you see. So I'm always kind of partial to the theatrical cut. And I think people are too hard on it. And I enjoy for what it's worth what, you know, the narration brings. And because I was too young and stupid to understand the themes. I think that's a good a good point, Chris. I, I think I needed that, too. Yeah. As a as a young kid. Yeah. But then now it's fine because, like, we're older and now we have the better cuts and it's all good. <laughs> so everything kind of happened in its right, right order in a way. I'm right there with you. Like, I watched uh, three versions of it. I watched the final cut, and then I watched the international cut, which I don't think is any different. It's a little bit more violence. And I watched the theatrical. And yeah, the narration is definitely, like, kind of bad, kind of badly written and kind of badly performed by Harrison Ford because he famously didn't want to do it. And he was really pissed that he had to do it. However, it's kind of like reading a novelization or something where you're like, oh, now I know a little bit more about what's going on. I mean, obviously, I saw that version first, so I always had that information. When the 91 version came out, I was like, yes, this is the version. And then when the better, even better version came out, I was like, this is the version. But I still enjoy knowing that information from the theatrical. And in my mind, that's canon. That's what's going on. Yeah. That's what Deckard feels. Yeah. Yeah. He's hard boiled. As far as director's cuts go, I think this might be the only movie that was improved as a, as a release of a director's cut because that, that term director's cut, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure there's, you know, people that will argue about director's cuts. The one other movie that everybody agrees the director's cut is vastly superior is another Ridley Scott movie, and it's Kingdom of Heaven. Still not a great movie, though. Honestly, when I saw when I saw the, the Blade Runner director's cut, though, I was a little bit pissed because you honestly get less movie. The only thing that's that's new is his unicorn dream. And I remember walking out of the theater and going, going like, what the hell? <laughs> and they took off the terrible drive through the countryside at the end. I'm saying it's you get less. You get less movie. You know, they cut stuff. Chris, that's a good thing. <laughs> I know it's a good thing. But like as a fan, I'm like, oh, I can just do that in my head. You know what I mean? I can stop the movie and, and stop that. And then I'm like, the only new nugget I actually got was the shot that was maybe lifted from Legend, but... So in your mind, director's cuts should be more shit crammed in there. Well, usually, yes. It's usually, oh, James Cameron will show, like, here's, like, five whole scenes that I lopped off just to get it down to a running time, whereas, like... Yeah, he's the king of terrible director's cuts. That's what I mean about director's cuts. Like, they've come to be this thing where it's like, we'll just throw in the deleted scenes and... We can market it for, a, a, you know, another theatrical run. And it's usually 
does nothing for the the movie. I agree that the the final cut is the way to go, and I feel like is the gold standard for if you're going to revise a movie, this is the way to do it. This is given the royal treatment. Everything that needs to be fixed is fixed. The special effects that work weren't really touched. You know, it's not a special edition George Lucas, and yeah. I appreciate that the fact that they gave us like all five cuts on the Blu-ray. They were like, here you go. If you want the theatrical cut, take it. If you want this cut, take it. It's the one movie that uh, each time they went back to to remaster it and do more work on it and recut it, a lot of love was giving to it, given to it. And, and each, so the three iterations of it just get better and better. I, I can't think of another movie like that except, I guess, Kingdom of Heaven. The Phantom Menace. <laughs> Star Wars. Yeah, he doesn't add like more spinners, which are the name of the uh, police cars that fly around. It's not like he throws all this other right. garble into Digital the Digital stuff in there. Yes. Good no, God. he keeps it the way it was with the Vangelis score. So why don't we talk about that? Now, it was one of the first scores I remembered that didn't really sound like what I was used to scores being like, it didn't sound like traditional instruments. I know they're synthesizers and stuff like that. But to me, especially the, this, this first sequence with the cityscape, this score was like a completely otherworldly. Yeah. And this was like the time of Vangelis. Cause this was around the time of chariots of fire, which had yeah. that. Dun, 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 oh, dun. Yeah. Oh, so good. Oh, I, I had to learn that for piano lessons. Yeah. That and that percussion, that, so good. By the way, I think it's Vangelis. At least that's the way Ridley Scott says it. I'm going to say Vangelis. I'm going to say Van Giles like I thought it was <laughs> for like 20 years. I really like Van Giles. He used to be in Jay Giles. Yeah. Yeah, Jay <laughs> He was in the Jay Giles band. <laughs> so got the side project going. I'm going to score Blade Runner. Okay, so Vangelis, uh, the, the score for Blade Runner and... The Mark Isham score for The Hitcher. I think those two soundtracks were like directly responsible for me getting going into this deep dive into new age music in the 80s. I loved the score for Blade Runner. And for a long time, you couldn't really get an authentic yeah. recording of it. You would get like a version of the theme. It was this like disco version. It was mm-hmm. terrible. And I, I remember being so mad because... Yeah, it has this like Buck Rogers like in the background and all these like goofy things. You can get a couple of themes on the soundtrack, but yeah, for the longest time, that soundtrack was actually impossible to obtain. And then there were like numerous bootlegs uh, that would come out of Japan and stuff. And I chased this soundtrack down for... I think a good 15 years until finally like (laughs) Napster provided us with... Do you have the Esper version? I have like six different versions of the soundtrack. Right. I think that the Esper version is pretty complete. I feel like it has almost everything. Yeah, man, that that soundtrack is beautiful. The synth that he uses is a CS80 and it's apparently very, very temperamental. And if you plug it in the wrong way, it catches fire and, you know, constantly (laughs) has to be tuned and... uh, But you're right. And watching it again, I realized that the score does so much for the movie. There's not a lot of optimism in the movie, but the score carries that optimism because it's like you're seeing this Hades landscape and you're like, this is awful. This can't be the future. But then when with the music behind it, you're like, 
but it's cool. <laughs> it's so great. It's a weird juxtaposition with the the jazzy sound. It's kind of like what yeah. the uh, the score to Taxi Driver does. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. You know, like Taxi Driver is just super dark, and then it's got this sort of saxophone going over it. And the same same thing in Blade Runner. This movie is full of juxtapositions that somehow the sum is greater than its parts, and it just brings it to a whole new level. To, to me at the time, I thought this was the most awesome futuristic sounding score. In some ways it does, in some ways it doesn't. And it's, it's another one of those juxtapositions of this movie that it can be all things at all times to all people. Oh, and by the way, that Hades landscape is, is ripped off in like God knows how many movies. I think like the... Uh, the one that comes to mind is uh, Attack of the Clones. Like there's this whole chase scene and they literally come upon the Hades landscape in one of the sections. I'm sure you guys like tried to forget about it. <laughs> I watch Attack of the Clones about once a year and then I try to forget about it immediately <laughs> after I finish watching it. It is terrible. I've had to go through all those because it's, it's currently my son's favorite Star Wars movie. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> wow. The eye that we see, is that just... Do you guys think of that as a, just a unattached eye of the beholder? Or like, because sometimes I was like, is that supposed to be Leon? And he's going to, to visit Tyrell and then that's him? I always took that as Rachel. Oh, okay. I've actually never really tried to read into that eye too much. I thought it was Tyrell. Mm. Well, we're sort of heading slowly towards the Tyrell building as this is all going on. And we're getting, you know, we go past these like futuristic fire breathing smokestacks and everything. And then, yeah, we're getting these sort of flash cuts of like an eye and we see the fire of the smokestack sort of reflecting in the iris. So, yeah, I mean, I think it would logically stand to reason that maybe it's Terrell or maybe it's Rachel, but we're also going into the Voight comp test, which is all centered around the eye. I, you know, really what it is is just trying to kind of visually move you into the Voight comp test, where they're doing this test on prospective replicants, and you know the answers are all within the eye. I think that's really what's going on. It's kind of an an initial statement of style, yeah. too. That like this is definitely going to be an artistic science fiction movie right off the bat. Right. So you're, you know, you're getting these bold images like a giant eye. So immediately, you know, you're, this is not star Wars. I mean, one could say maybe it's a bit pretentious. Oh, it's definitely pretentious, but awesome. Awesomely pretentious. Yeah. Like, yes. That's what I was saying is the movie sort of gives you that in the very beginning. Yeah. It lets you know, this is going to be an arty farty film. So like put away your action figures. You're not going to get any of that. (laughs) Just from these opening shots, we're getting this Vangelis score, but we're also getting another incredible sound design for science fiction. Like that spinner that goes right past you. Yeah. So you're getting some new sounds and it's another one of these like industrial light and magic fantasy special effects movies that is just it's blowing you away with those kinds of um, lens flares that you're getting from the lights of the ships and stuff. So you're getting that same kind of sound engineering and visual effects that you got from films like Close Encounters and Star Wars. So yeah. it's as big as those movies. I would venture to say that the sound design all starts from the very beginnings of the credits too. Like like Vangelis's score. And then when the text starts scrolling, you have this weird sort of almost like otherworldly siren that's like, woo, 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 
and it's and just, you're getting these really low rumbling. Yes, all that all that stuff. Even before you see a, a an actual image, this movie's giving you a vibe and giving and setting you up totally. so well. And it's just like this is the greatest intro to me in cinema history. It's just like I could watch Absolutely. it over and over yeah. and over again. And it's like you don't want to skip the credits. You want to watch it all. You want to. It's because everything is paced so well. You you want to see the Lad Company logo. Yes, like that has to be in there. <laughs> exactly. Rewind it to that logo. <laughs> I feel sort of sad because you know there are probably people who are like younger who think this looks shitty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, and they're just like that fucking movie's boring. Like probably yeah. some people listening to this podcast. Let's say is is it boring though? Like I know that we were all captivated by it, but. It is a little boring. It is, yes. Right? It's slow. It's slow. I don't know if you could say it's boring. Maybe by today's standard, it's boring. I would say I was a little bored at times as as a kid. It has boring parts. I would say it's slow. There And there's some kind of clunky parts, too. Yes. But it's a fucking masterpiece. Fuck anyone who hates Blade Runner. <laughs> we go into the Tyrell Corporation, which is basically this giant pyramid in the far end of Los Angeles that's, I don't know, like thousands of stories high or something. I mean, it's just the most massive building that you've ever seen. And there's these like uh, elevators going up to the upper floors and stuff. It's just super, super cool. But we kind of go off to the side and we come into this office sort of area where this guy who is a Blade Runner is performing a Voight comp test, which is a test that is one part sort of psychological and another part physiological where he's sort of looking through a lens at the person's eye and asking them all these weird questions, usually animal related, because yeah. in this world, animals are pretty much mostly extinct and the only animals anyone really interacts with are artificial animals that are made by the same company, the Tyrell Corporation, which um, it comes from the book and is a really super interesting idea and a super interesting element of the movie. So, yeah, a lot of these questions are like, what would you do if there was a tortoise on the ground? Would you flip it over or would you not? And like later, one of the questions to Rachel is going to be about a boiled dog. And that's where she gets kind of thrown off. So I think the idea is that the replicants can't really emotionally process feelings towards animals the way that we can. Yeah, they can't empathize. Right. It's this sort of empathy thing. It's an empathy test? This guy is uh, giving this bruiser type dude, Leon, this empathy test. And Leon is played by the great Brian James, who uh, has passed away too soon, unfortunately. But he was one of the great faces of the 80s. He shows up in a lot of 80s stuff. He's in like 48 hours or whatever. He's just a face that would show that guy kind of guy who would show up in a lot of movies, usually as like a tough or whatever. And he's doing what he does here, and he gets freaked out by the test and blows the guy away. With one of the most iconic lines ever, I'll tell you about my mother. I mean, that echoed through eternity. I do love the questions and how weird they are. I feel like it's always yeah. such a odd question. You know, even the ones about, you know, being a lesbian or the, like, who wrote these questions? And so it's a fair question when he asks them, like, who the fuck wrote these questions, man? And like, it does crack me up. Well, these yeah. are the things I think is the most Philip K. Dickian yes. kind of yes. like uh, the, every, everything in the movie. These feel like they could be taken right out of Philip K. Dick. Absolutely. But it's also kind of like uh, there hadn't really been another movie 
quite like this because I remember the first time I was seeing it. It takes a long time to guide the, the viewer into w that these are not robots. You know, first you're talking about the psychology of them, and then uh, there's a little bit of information about them, but that, that these are bioengineered, it kind of unveils that very slowly. That's why Ridley Scott went with replicant, because he was like, we have to avoid the, the term android. Right. Yeah, he was like, if anyone names that word on the, on the set, he's fucking fired because it's replicant. Yeah. And because they're trying to give you the impression that it's really just a DNA clone of a human, but it, that art, right. that is artificially grown, not, yes, you're right, not like you don't tear its arm off and it's got servos and gizmos and stuff. So. Right. But I remember as a kid, I kept thinking like, okay, there's going to be a scene where they rip one of them open, there's going to be a bunch of wires inside. And, it, and I, I kind of loved like how slowly it takes for you to understand that these really are like grown humans that they're they're just like us i think that this is a, a testament to it being ahead of its time you know like people didn't understand what dna cloning and replication was like now people would get it because it's kind of commonplace right. but in 1982 just like tron where they're like what's this guy got zapped into a computer what these people aren't robots what you know like people didn't get it you know it wasn't it yeah. wasn't nearly as like a shorthand with you know, non-sci-fi nerds. No, but it was really mysterious. So it worked for the movie. Absolutely. All right. So at this point, we are introduced to our main character, Rick Deckard, who is a Blade Runner, this type of police officer that is specifically tasked with hunting down these replicants and retiring them, as I said, which means killing them. And we're introduced to Deckard by we see him on the rainy, uh, really awesomely production designed streets of L.A. You would have never guessed that this was just your average backlot set that has been set designed up the butt to look like something you've never seen. As somebody who's lived in L.A. for a long time, of course, it's hilarious to see that it's constantly raining all the time. That's been the butt of a lot of jokes from many Los Angelinos as it never rains. Do you think that was su supposed to be like a, a future climate yes. issue or? For, yeah, it was supposed to be acid rain. Yeah, yeah. That, okay. Like the pollution got so bad that it caught all the moisture and then it's supposed to be acid rain falling on everybody. And that's why everyone's like fucked up. I always wondered about that because there's a lot of things in the movie just for the sake of style that they're put in there to be True. this kind of neo-noir. Mm -hmm. Right. And I'm fine with it. I like that we are now living in a post Blade Runner world where we've gone past the date of this. So now it's like an alternate reality future. I also yeah. bristle at it when people give science fiction movies a hard time for not accurately predicting what the future is going to look like, because that's <laughs> yeah. not the job of science fiction. It's not trying to predict the future it really annoys me when pedantic people are like well that's not how things turned out <laughs> who cares you go to asian cities and they it looks pretty damn close to this you know shanghai or like parts of downtown la look like this so it's not not crazy it was definitely inspired by like tokyo mm -hmm. you know it was it was inspired by what they were seeing as a lot of neon and stuff happening but to your point sebastian uh, I just read this quote from, I think it was Ursula Le Guin, and um, she said, it's not the duty of science fiction writers to predict the future. Their duty is just to talk about what's happening now. Yeah. This was a time in the early 80s when the whole idea of Japan sort of 
taking over America by sort of buying up everything that was an American and sort of insinuating their culture. Atari's going to be dominating. <laughs> insinuating their culture into ours. And I feel like that's also a big part of the sort of quasi-Asian world that we're in in this movie where, you know, For sure. Asian uh, culture and food and everything is really sort of taken over Los Angeles and it's pretty much like Neo Tokyo or something like that. And Asian cultures are generally a, l- a bit more tech forward. Yeah. So I feel like that embracing shows up here as well. And I also want to point out that during the geisha shot, there is like a, a Coke sign that says Coke joy. And that's a little bit of an Easter egg for the next movie which I'm curious if they were like, oh, Joy, like there's a big sign, billboard for Joy, we'll, we'll use that and blah, blah, blah. And the, uh, the kanji neon sign that's behind Deckard in that opening shot, that's all sort of like blue and, and red and, and orangey, is, says Origin, which plays into like, well, who is Deckard? Who ah. what is his origin? And it's funny how they, they take that sign and they move it around and it shows up in, in other various shots. And I'll, I'll point out where it comes in. But if you look and you recognize that particular kanji, like you, you can spot it in throughout the film. I want to talk just for a second about that Geisha Coke sign, just because it is so in grained in my brain that that image and that kind of you hear the plucking Japanese instrument mm-hmm. like and you hear her kind of you hear a some sort of Japanese wailing going on behind it it's so haunting yeah. and yeah. it has nothing to do with anything but it's just one of the best pieces of visual and audio atmosphere in any sci-fi movie and I feel like that's what all modern movies kind of get wrong. Like Ghost in the Shell draws so heavily from this, the movie, not the anime, but like they just don't get it right. You know, it's not just, oh, everything's Japanese. It's like pulling these kind of things out that are sort of unique and odd and off-putting in this futuristic setting. So it's like you're seeing this geisha, which is a archaic image and mm-hmm. you're hearing this plucking, I forget the name of those instruments, those Japanese stringed instruments, but you're hearing that. And then you're seeing a friggin' spinner spaceship type of thing zooming by it. It's that juxtaposition of old and ancient and new and stuff that's really cool. And she's, I, th- I think it's an ad for a pill. It's like some kind yeah. of, right. you know, she's popping a pill. It's like a euphoric. And smiling, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, make you feel good. It's also great that this was of an era where there were so many less lawsuits about like, we can we put Coke in the background of our dystopian future? And was like, yeah, sure. They were all sponsors. And apparently there was like a curse because everyone's like Atari, you know, went bankrupt. <laughs> Pan Am went bankrupt. And everyone's like, shit, did, are all the companies that were in Blade Runner going to go bankrupt eventually? Then Coke did new Coke. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I like the, you know, you're talking about juxtaposition again, like, that scene that you just described is so lonely feeling too. And uh, there's this constant loneliness in Blade Runner, but then also when you're on the street, you can't get away from people. And it's like, you have that feeling at the same time that like you're surrounded by people, but we're all lonely and it's a lonely city. It's an empty city, but then on the streets it's, it's jam packed and claustrophobic. So I love it. And it still all just works. There's so few films where you can just watch it over and over and over again and just see uh, something new every single time like that opening 
shot where we come into Deckard and uh, and he's just sitting there. We see people walking with those umbrellas with the, you know, the light poles and you know he's reading the newspaper. And there's all these neon signs behind him and he looks up and sees the uh, that giant blimp for the other world off colonies, which is yeah. amazing. That just alludes to it, but then never really spends any time talking about it. It's just like, oh yeah, Earth's pretty bad. And if you got enough money, you could go off world. Well, you know, it's funny. I was thinking about it while I was watching it today. Like if that, if this movie came out today, the whole opening sequence would be the replicants like breaking out from off world and coming to the, (laughs) coming to earth. You know what I mean? That's how like a modern movie would start. Like we've got to start with an action scene. And it's like, this movie does not do that at all. It doesn't even go into like what exactly you know, happened. I mean, the Bryant later talks about it. He's like, yeah, the replicants stole a shuttle and killed everybody on the shuttle and then came down. But like a modern movie would definitely show you that. It would have to show it. And it would suck. Yeah. And it would be lame. Yeah. So we're introduced to our main character, Deckard, as played by Harrison Ford. I do love in the theatrical, in his narration where he's talking about sushi. That's what my ex-wife called me, cold fish. And he's like ordering, like, I guess sushi, but he's also getting noodles and he's having trouble communicating with the vendor, the sushi guy. The vendor just doesn't want him, thinks that he's, he wants four and he goes, two is sufficient. He's like talking him down from ordering because, you know, every good cop knows the lingo. I'm going to say maybe something a little controversial here. It might be the only real controversial thing I'm going to say And that is, I wouldn't change anything about this movie. However, Harrison Ford at Deckard, if they had cast somebody else, I don't know. I think the movie still could have worked. I don't really think this is Harrison Ford's greatest moment necessarily as an actor. Again, I wouldn't change anything about the movie. But when I saw like some of the other names that came up, there was a couple there that I was like, Yeah, I don't know. I could have seen that like Tommy Lee Jones was somebody that was suggested. And it's like, I actually kind of like could see like Tommy Lee Jones being effective as this character. Yeah. And especially at the time. And I and I will argue that this, I think, may have contributed a little bit to the film's initial sort of disappointed reaction is that they were really selling it on Harrison Ford because he had been Han Solo and he had just had another huge hit as Indiana Jones. So it's like now he's the guy, you know, like now he's in this other sci fi movie and it's super exciting. But the character of Deckard is neither Han Solo nor Indiana Jones. It's not that Harrison Ford can't play only Han Solo and Indiana Jones. We've seen him now play many other things, but I think his character is just so sort of downplayed and kind of depressive. It's kind of a hard character to relate to, especially for a science fiction audience of that time. He's a noir character, but he's not really a science fiction character. And I think that you could have put somebody else in this role. I think there are a few names that have been bandied about that I think would have done just as good of a job. I think you're right. I think for that character of Deckard, you can kind of fill those shoes with a lot of different people. However, the main reason I like Harrison Ford in this role is the camera loves to get up really close on Harrison Ford's face to see him get the shit kicked out of him. He does that so well. He's one of the best actors to just see him get completely beaten up 
and tussled around. So basically the whole climax of the movie is just Harrison Ford getting beat up. He, nobody does it like him. <laughs> I don't know if anybody right. else can do that as good as Harrison Ford. And you sympathize with him. There's almost a childlike quality to the, the way he emotes with his face when he's getting beat up or whatever that you just, you love watching him and you, and you empathize with him so much. Yeah. He's one of those actors that just has a face where you can just have the camera set on that face and you can just kind of have this dumb look on his face and carry out an entire scene. That's a good point. Sebastian, I agree I agree with you though that it's it's not one of his like oh pivotal things where you're like oh if oh if he was not cast what would we have done and where like you know if Tom Selleck had, was Indiana Jones like that would have killed the whole thing exactly whereas like I could see or or anybody else as Han Solo you no know, Kurt Russell could have been Han Solo like he would have been a fine a fine Han Solo but I, I agree with what you're saying that you know Tommy Lee Jones or any anybody who could play a hard boiled detective could have you know gotten away with this but. Ridley Scott has come out and thinks that it's one of Harrison's best performances. The, the more he watches it, he, he goes, Harrison doesn't appreciate this as much as he should. And maybe it's because he didn't direct him or they had an issue together on set and they used to fight a lot. Yeah, they hated each other the whole time. So Ridley Scott is like a huge proponent saying this is one of Harrison's best performances and he should talk about it more. I think that's often true of artists where they didn't enjoy the experience and they butted heads creatively with people, but a really great thing comes out of it. But for yeah. them, it's hard for them to see it. All they can remember is having the creative disagreements and fighting all the time. I don't know if I would say it's one of his best performances, but it's a really good performance. He doesn't in any way muck up the movie and i definitely agree with troy in the aspect that yeah nobody gets beaten up like harrison ford and also like his face on the on the poster is just this sweaty downtrodden detective that's harrison ford like i don't know if i'd want to yeah. see a uh, a grimy sweaty tommy lee jones on the, oh on the man poster. are you kidding that craggy face with all that rainwater <laughs> in it it would be incredible it'd be like watching rivers in a human flesh that'd be amazing picture it just when you go to bed tonight picture tommy lee jones and i'll think about to wet tommy lee jones it's a good thing that we got him though because i feel like this movie would never have been greenlit with the budget unless you had a star yep. like harrison ford so for the rest of the movie, I'm glad that he's there. You definitely get your shirtless Harrison Ford scene in here. Sweaty, shirtless Harrison Ford. Which helps sell the movie to people like my wife who just love watching Harrison Ford. One funny tidbit is that he, you know, he had just finished Indiana Jones and Deckard was supposed to wear a hat the whole time. And he was like, fuck no, I'm not wearing that hat. <laughs> like, I'm, I want to do this movie, but I'm not wearing a hat because I just spent fucking nine months filming a movie with a hat on. And then Ridley Scott's like, OK, fine, you know, and like because obviously the the North thing it would have worked for. But, you know, maybe it was too a bridge too far. But yeah, it's not the best Harrison Ford haircut. Yeah, his hair isn't really looking that great. But I mean, it's wet the whole time. So what are you going to do? Mm, I think when he does the uh, when he goes in to do the Voight comp on Rachel, he has this really bad bowl cut. It's, it's not his hottest uh, haircut. Yeah, so let's just kind of breeze through this. He gets picked up by uh, Edward James Almost, who's playing the character of uh, Gaff, who is another detective, another Blade Runner, who speaks in this city speak that's a combination of all these different languages. He says in Hungarian, horse dick, you are the Blade Runner. <laughs> and apparently in, in Hungary, like everyone heard it and like laughed out loud in the theater. 
um, <laughs> when when he said that because apparently Edward James almost put it all together like he did the mishmash because like it wasn't in the script and Edward James almost ran with it and then found all these words and and mashed them all together so kudos to him so Deckard meets with his uh, former police chief the named Bryant who's played by the amazing character actor M- Emmett Walsh. And uh, he's this racist who refers to replicants as skin jobs, and he sort of, sort of sets up the whole mission that there are these, uh, what is it, four skin jobs or replicants that are on the loose. Now, do you guys get the the counting of the replicants and how that's a mistake in the in the theatrical cut? Right. Yeah, I remember something about that or whatever. There's supposed to be six, and they said one of them gets fried going through an electrical field. We lost the other, so that's five left, and they never address who the fifth one is. And apparently in the in the Blade Runner video game that came out in the 90s, they had this whole thing where it was a similar situation where a bunch of replicants um, escaped from off-world colonies, came to Earth, and they posited that Deckard, the Blade Runner, or the, the hero Blade Runner in that game, was the fifth replicant that basically, as soon as they're rebelled and released and they need to be retired, like a switch flips in him and he becomes a Blade Runner and that's why Deckard is is a replicant because he's assigned to like take care of these four replicants. Should we just talk about this now since you brought it up? Yeah, let's get this out of the way. Troy, do you think that Deckard is a replicant? I think this discussion is annoying every single time it comes up. But we have to have it. So let's have it. Is fucking Deckard a fucking replicant? All right. In the uh, original Blade Runner, I kind of don't give a shit. And then in the sequel, it seems like he's not that's where i stand on it chris is he a fucking replicant or not he's not a replicant at all but i do believe harrison ford said it the best he goes like whether deckard is a replicant is one of the delicious aftertastes of blade runner and it's like yes of course like you know go ahead you know have your discussion and ridley scott is very adamant about it but i believe when especially when i saw it that I'm in line with what Harrison Ford thinks, that the audience needs a human to relate to. This is a story about being human, and if everyone's a replicant, then, you know, that's kind of a moot point. And so you need him to be human, and I think he plays it as human, and I I believe he's a human. I, like Troy, found the whole discussion sort of annoying to begin with. I don't think it matters, like you're saying, Chris. Yeah. It really doesn't matter. It's a, t- it's a fine conversation to have, but that's not really the point. The point is not, is he a replicant or is he not a replicant? Ridley Scott obviously adamantly believes he is a replicant, and as the author of the material, then I guess we're to take it that he is. Let me just say something about that. So there's a scene where, you know, Deckard goes behind Rachel and they're clearly filming her and they're trying to put those red replicant eyes on her, right? And then he comes into the shot and it's probably almost like a throwaway shot, right? It's not set up as a real two shot. And you see him there with his red eyes glowing because he's catching the light by accident with their blocking, right? And I heard Kathy Habar, who is like one of the producers of the movie at a QA and and she literally said that was a mistake that was a mistake that Ridley saw in in the rushes and then thought oh maybe he is a replicant and this is the type of thing where I feel like Ridley Scott gets an idea in his head and then runs with it and goes the space jockey is an engineer yes and everybody's going no that sucks that sucks Ridley don't do that and he goes nope nope that's how it's gonna be now he's a replicant and you're like I knew all along that that was how it went down, and I was 
so thankful that it got confirmed and that's all i have to say about it <laughs> well wait i just wanted to to ask isn't this a discussion that kind of came after yeah yes okay so this was never really a part of the original story right there's so much to digest that i think it became at once people digested the story and were able to like wank on it a little bit more it started percolating when the uh director's cup came out in the 90s before that it was never mentioned that unicorn business right yes because of the unicorn right exactly that added dream, yes. That's where it really started to sort of catch fire was like, oh, look, you know, now he dreams of the unicorn, mm-hmm. which, you know, was test footage for Legend. It was not actually footage for Legend, which was a rumor going around for a long time, but it was the unicorn test footage from Legend. Ridley threw it in there. Maybe at that point he was standing hard for the idea that uh that mm-hmm. Deckard was a replicant or whatever and maybe that's you know trying to sort of solidify the idea or maybe it's not maybe he just threw it in there but that's really where it starts to become like a thing where everybody has to talk about whether or not Deckard is a replica I do love Blade Runner 2049 for shooting that down though <laughs> another reason why Denis Villeneuve is god because He's like, no, that idea sucks. We're not doing that. <laughs> so, I mean, he doesn't come straight out and say it in the movie, but he does. I agree. I agree. I, I think Because so. the whole point of the movie is that Rachel had a child. Right. Yeah. All right. So do we need to say anything more about is Deckard a replicant? Nope. Let's please move past that. Yeah, but it had to be done. No, you have to, you have to talk about it. Yes, of course. You have to address the replicant in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> So then we get the scene where Deckard is called to Tyrell Corporation and he comes into the Tyrell Corporation. We get this iconic shot of both an owl and Sean Young in this super 80 sort of look that she's wearing coming towards the camera. Definitely Sean Young's best moment in cinema, maybe yeah. other than the boost. <laughs> oh, yeah, the boost, baby. Not a great actor. I don't think anybody would argue that she's a great actress, but she is perfect as a sort of robot woman, a super attractive robot woman. And we also get um, Tyrell as played by a character actor who I love, Joe Turkle, who is also Lloyd from The Shining. These two roles alone make him a legend in my mind. He's just got a great face and he's really great at Tyrell. He wants to test the Voight Comp test to see if it really works. So he has Deckard tested on his assistant, who is ostensibly a human being. And as uh, Deckard tests her, the test goes on for a really long time, unlike most replicants, but it is eventually re- revealed to Deckard that she's a replicant. But this is all taking place in this amazing, like, vast room with this sort of lighting that's sort of ref- golden reflections of water. Yeah, with the uh, an exterior of that, that landscape behind them, which just looks like brown smog and the sun is rising and you just see orange this is after the sort of hellscape that you saw previously, like at the top of the uh, Tyrell building, you have this dreamy view of the dystopian landscape. Well, that's what I like about the pace of this movie is that it takes its time to enjoy its own beauty. Yeah. You know, not a lot of movies would, would do that. Where just take this whole, you know, the Vangela score gets to 
do this lush thing that it's doing while he's like setting up the void contest in any other movie you'd be like skip ahead skip ahead and just just cut to after the test is over or something like that this leaves room for you to just enjoy how beautiful this movie is which is is that something that's going away i mean if denis Villeneuve has his way maybe not but uh like you guys were saying like our audiences gonna be bored by something like this but it's so beautiful that like i have a hard time saying that this is wrong or should not be in the way cinema is i feel like at some point aren't audiences gonna get bored of things being so fast-paced sure i hope i feel like it will come around yeah i think after Let's hope you've you've exhausted yourself on tiktok right <laughs> people are gonna say i want to watch something that's just a three-hour shot of a city in this scene also uh this was ridley scott's first day of filming and apparently the columns in the tyrell office Mm -hmm. weren't the right way up and he went i want these columns flipped how long is it going to take to flip them and they were like uh the the whole morning come back after lunch And he went do it and we'll film it then and then apparently they flipped those giant columns because they were the wrong way around and that's just how exacting of a director he was where he's like i'll burn a whole fucking you know, half day just to like get it looking the right way. And if you look closely, the back two columns are flipped the wrong way. So he only got his way with four of them. (laughs) But still, it looks great. I mean, maybe he was totally right because that is a beautiful, beautiful shot. And maybe if the columns were different, it wouldn't be quite the same. So kudos, Redley Scott. There's a scene where, you know how Rachel like lights her cigarette lighter and she kind of like looks at it and is like, and the very next shot you can see she's struggling with her, cigarette lighter and she has to like light it three times in order to get it lit so i feel like it's one of those inside things where you know like she was having trouble like lighting it and she's like is it gonna light this time and it does and she's very happy about it you can tell troy how do you feel about uh sean young here she's kind of perfect like you said it's a she's a a replicant it's feels a little stiff but it's kind of appropriate it's actually kind of perfect because she's this beautiful woman with these like outrageous hairstyles and costumes like these 40s costumes so she almost kind of seems like a doll i think it's clear that he he cast her for her look more than the acting and and i think afterward he cast her and then was like start with those acting lessons right now and then basically had a coach the entire time but it kind of works yes i think she works perfect in this i wouldn't think of anybody else again like these like you were saying with the Deckard character like I think a lot of these roles could be played by many different people but Sean Young's perfect in it what I've always found sort of fascinating about this scene is the way the Voight comp test ends it just ends and she just doesn't have an answer like he just goes and the entree is boiled dog and then that's it. You just see her sitting there, no response. And then he's like, well, the test is over or whatever. Like, I just love the way there's no punctuation mark at the end of it. It's right. just, that's the last question. Well, the test almost goes off the charts. It's like, and so it's like, she's like overloaded the S- the boy comp test because it can't even handle how much of a replicant she is. Also, can we just talk for a second about how cool that thing looks? Like it's got this like breathing apparatus, this accordion bellows that's going up and down. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I love it. After this, uh, Deckard goes to uh, Leon's apartment. And this is kind of hilarious because Leon's apartment just really looks like a shitty hotel room. It looks in no way futuristic at all. It looks like any sort of flop house room that you could currently rent. It's called the Yukon. Yeah, in Los Angeles. And in this hotel room... 
Deckard finds a, a bunch of photographs, which are going to be important, and he finds a scale. And meanwhile, Leon has seen that policemen are sort of puttering around in his hotel room, and so he sort of takes off, and he goes to meet our villain, Roy Batty, as played by Rutger Hauer. And we're really given this sort of strange introduction where we see a fist sort of trying to clench itself. And this is sort of um, symbolic of the fact that the replicants are sort of falling apart physically, like they're, they're trying to keep themselves alive. What they want is to have more life because there is a fail safe built into these replicants where they only live for four years. So they're already starting to sort of physically disintegrate. Just like an iPhone. <laughs> right. <laughs> And I feel like this shot is taken from later in the movie because it doesn't really quite match. Then we cut to Roy and he's in like a phone booth or something. Well, yeah, his the hands like really pale too. It's got the black right. fingernails that looks like one of the shots at the end, like when he puts that spike through his hand. Exactly. And the shot of him literally turning to face Leon was from the Tyrell thing because you can see Tyrell's like thumb on his shoulder. And so, and they, they actually fix that in the final cut. They erase the hand. And so like when he turns to look at Leon after he knocks on the thing, that was one of the, like the mistakes that they had um, covered up. Yeah. It's a little awkward. You can tell they cobbled it together from other pieces to give him more of an intro. However, he's awesome. This is the best performance oh in Blade Runner. Hands, hands down. down. Yes. Rutger Hauer is the heart and soul of Blade Runner. This is really his movie. Yeah, he cannot be replaced by anybody else playing this role. Yes. Yes. This is a top 5 performance mm -hmm. in a movie in my opinion, certainly as a villain if one would even consider him a villain. He kills people. He's a villain. Yeah, he's a villain. But he is so friggin' good in this movie. And even just watching it for this uh, podcast, I was really just swept away once again in his performance. He owns this movie. Yes. This is Rutger Hauer's movie. Yes. He is for sure the character in the movie for me, for sure. And like just every scene with him, the way he plays it, his weird energy is just so perfect. Yeah. And apparently like Ridley had only like seen him in like one of um, Paul Verhoeven's Turkish fruit, Danish <laughs> Turkish delight or whatever, which I haven't seen, which I'd love to see. But he was like, that's the guy. Yeah, He does a lot of weird stuff in that movie. Let me just tell you that. Even as a kid when I first saw this I was like that guy yeah. he's scary and magnetic and sexy yeah. and you know he's of kind it. of everything all at once oh, and the hitcher he scared the shit out of me he was terrifying when I first saw that he does a great job of also mixing the the sort of childlike innocence of only being alive for four years which is super hard yeah. to do how do you make like a grown man act like a child but then also be as intelligent as as the bioengineer that made him like this. It's this insane cocktail that he has to mix, but he does it so well. He has this weird inflection where it still seems like he's trying to figure out how to speak. But at the same time, he's got this sort of poetry to yes. like everything he says, which I mean is really going to come into play at the end. And on top of it, he's got this 
sense of humor. Yeah. So like, you know, he's making jokes, but they're like really kind of amazingly weird, funny jokes. Like later when he's brings up the googly eyes and, and stuff, it's just such an amazing performance. So layered and so many different things going on. And he does it so well that like, I think you said this is that you kind of, you sympathize with him. That's why you were questioning yeah, whether he's a absolutely. villain or not, because at the end of the movie, you're on his side. You know, you feel bad that these people are getting hunted and it's all his performance. I think a lot of that was him, you know, bringing in the the Blake poem that he tells Chu right before he kills him and all that stuff. He added a lot of that. And I feel like you're right. It pays off at the end. And if he hadn't done that, you would have been yeah. like, this is kind of coming out of nowhere. But he built. it's right. all built into the character from the beginning. And it's a solid performance all the way through, even though he has to juggle all these things. He's not like, oh, he's just childlike here and then not over here. It just for some reason, he makes it all work. Even when he does these horrific things, like when he finally kills Terrell, he seems so conflicted and confused yeah, and anxious totally. and nervous and scared at the same time and, and angry. The different levels of what he's doing in his performance is yeah, I feel like I feel like Roy Batty should be the new Hamlet. You know, fuck doing Hamlet now. I feel like all actors <laughs> should be like, check out my Roy Batty because like you get to do so much stuff. I feel like Roy Batty does not get put into the great villain performances yeah, category enough. Right. Like everybody talks about like Heath Ledger and Dark Knight or whatever, totally. but this performance is as good, if not better than that one. I agree. In terms of like presenting a well-rounded villain, I mean, I kind of think he's top five yeah. of all time. It was the first time I remember watching a villain performance and thinking like, oh, wait, the villain's actually relatable. And yeah. by the end of the movie, he's actually kind of the hero in a way. Totally. It totally kind of recalibrated my whole thinking about what villains could be in a yeah. story like oh a villain can actually turn out to almost be the hero or now you're seeing it from a completely different point of view and it's kind of what the movie is about is because the character of Deckard's a pretty shitty cop he's just a bad cop like he's kind of bad at his job aside from just being able to pull a trigger the detective work is really finding out about the replicants. And, and again, that's all Rutger Hauer. As an audience, the viewer is learning about what who replicants are. And uh, the character of Deckard is just sort of like guiding you through that story. Well, I think that the theme is supposed to be that Deckard, you know, doesn't kill Rachel and doesn't become a robot himself. And, you know, it learns to become more empathetic. It was supposed to be the, the point. But I feel like Rutger Howard's shines so so very very brightly that he it almost takes over <laughs> Deckard's arc in the whole thing you know it's there but it's it's not nearly as as strong as 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 Roy Batty the next scene we get is uh Rachel visits uh Deckard as at his apartment because she's learned that she's a replicant and she wants to talk to him about it and she's all upset and we get a lot of talk about implanted memories and stuff but kind of the main thing about this scene is the Frank Lloyd Wright house, which is the interior of uh, Deckard's apartment, which is this sort of amazing 
Art Deco. Mayan. It's actually, yeah. Yeah, it looks Mayan or whatever. It's the same house that was in The House on Haunted Hill, the Vincent Price movie. There's a clear shot of that house. It is the haunted house in that movie. The cool thing is, is this apartment is meant to be like high up in some tower somewhere. At one point, Deckard goes out to his balcony and we see how high up he is and everything. But in reality, it's like, just ground level house that's in the Hollywood Hills and probably was really sunny outside while they were shooting it and everything. But yeah, we get this scene between Deckard and Rachel where she's like, I am a human being. I have these memories. One time, like I remembered, uh, doing this or doing that with my mother and Deckard's like, yeah, you remember that memory you have about the spider that was building a web? And then she's like, yeah, then the babies came out and he's like, those are all Tyrell's niece or whatever. Then she gets really upset and starts crying. And he's like, no, no, no. I was just joking. I was just bad joke, (laughs) bad joke. (laughs) This is another great weird um, set dressing scene where we have like Deckard has a piano and he has these black and white photographs that are clearly like these people would probably be his great, great, great grandparents. There's just no reason for him to have these photos. No, it's tw- it's 2019 now. And I have photos of my great grandparents that are black and white, too. But I, but it is set decoration. It looks cooler than having a yeah a bunch of eye photos or whatever. Like Right. It's it's clearly trying to be stylish with his apartment. There's a sound design thing that's ripped off from Alien, which is like, which I love. And it's like, oh, yeah, I was going to mention that. That's the the, that air conditioner vent noise. Yeah. And it's actually a a devil tone. It's like an augmented fifth or something like that, which sounds it's it's so weirdly haunting and soothing at the same time. It's so great. It was one of the other reasons that I thought these films existed in the same universe. And then the, the purge screen when, when the spinner takes off is directly lifted from Alien as well. So the next scene we get is uh, we meet the character of Pris, played by Daryl Hannah. And she's kind of got this amazing sort of fright wig on, but she's sort of also got this sort of wafy look to her. And she's walking around downtown L.A. by the Bradbury building, which is a real building. And it's actually playing itself in this movie. I took my my wife there on our first date. Nice. Oh, nice. Chris, you've been there, right? Of course. Of course. It's well, it's it's an office building. So I assume in by 2019, it'll turn into apartments. But no, somebody just bought it. And it's now like um, ultra chic, lofty office spaces. They're like renovated some of the, the, not the, the main lobby, but the, uh, the actual offices. I was just blown away when I walked in it because yeah, it is obviously the structure that you see in the movie, but in the movie it is, the interior is made to look really dilapidated and like there's water everywhere and it just looks like it's falling apart. But when you go in it in real life, it's one of the most beautiful, well-kept buildings you've ever seen. It's it's an amazing historic building. Although there is like a subway right next to it now. Oh, that's kind of depressing. Like a sandwich subway store. <laughs> and you're just like, that that doesn't need to be in the Bradbury. Come on. That is depressing. At least it should be a Jersey Mike's. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But uh, Pris is sort of hiding in the garbage that's right outside the front door because she's uh, setting herself up to meet the genetic designer, J.F. Sebastian, as played by William Sanderson. 
so yeah, she's kind of hiding out there and then he comes along in his van and she sort of pops up and scares him. But, you know, she's this pretty sort of waifish girl. So he's like, wait, wait, wait. Apparently, like when she runs off and she like hits that. Yeah. His truck. The van. The window yeah. breaks. That was not a fake window. That was a real window. And she really jammed her elbow into that. And she really like messed up her elbow, I guess. It was like broken in like seven places. But she like totally plays out the rest of the scene. Like kudos, yeah. Daryl Hannah. Yeah. Like she must have been in excruciating pain. Absolutely. And she, she says that it, it hurt all the gymnastic scenes after that, too, you know, because Pris is supposed to be doing flips and things like that. And she was like, I really couldn't do it after that because my arm was still healing. And But it's like such a memorable scene because you feel like, now, oh, these are superhuman. Now, Daryl Hannah would go on to be kind of a big star of the 80s and Splash and stuff. But. For me, this is kind of her most iconic role. Like she's almost the equal to uh, Rutger Hauer. Not quite. She's not quite there. But, you know, she is his sort of girlfriend in the movie. We'll find out. And she really makes a good counterpart for him. She's, you know, insinuating herself into this designer's life. And we're going to find out this designer builds our artificial beings and he also creates his own sort of toys which are like living dolls but she kind of has like a doll-like appearance which she'll sort of augment later and you know and by the climax she's actually posing as like a mannequin so yeah. it's really clever character design we get this doll woman who's meeting the doll maker it's all sort of playing into all these themes really well and i think she does a great job and really looks the part it's kind of to your point troy too the way rachel kind of looks like a doll it's sort of this theme of like yeah. these replicants are almost these doll people if you you want to appreciate her performance even more you should watch the deleted scenes where um there's another actor who plays this sort of like pris as this very mousy girl it's stacy nelkin from uh, halloween three yeah stacy nelkin was almost pris but wasn't wait stacy nelson was she ellie in in Halloween 3? The one that turns into a robot at the end. Her, you didn't even pronounce her name right. It's Stacy Nelkin. You're like, who, Stacy Nelson? Are you even a Halloween 3 fan? I am a Halloween 3 super fan. And like, I really like William Sanderson. And yeah. He would go on to be in the show Newhart as a regular, as one of the three Daryls. Was Newhart after this? Yes. Okay. It was so weird as a fan of this movie because I also was a fan of the sitcom Newhart. And it's like, J.F. Sebastian is in Newhart? Like, this doesn't <laughs> compute. He's not like a comedy character. He's right. like a real actor. Yeah. But then I realized, no, he's actually more of a comedian than he is a straight actor. The little people who are playing some of his toys, when he comes in, they agree. They greet him like, Good morning, GAF. Home again, home again, jiggity jig. One of them's like a little teddy bear. And like <laughs> yeah, a, that's great. A Napoleon thing. like <laughs> So weird. And I really like later on, the scene where Roy comes over, you're getting the reaction shots of like one of the little toy men. Like, oh, <laughs> yeah, he's totally scary. Out. It's just such a, a great setting for, he's supposed to be like one of the most talented manufacturers working for Tyrell. Like, and he lives in this building that's falling apart and it's dirty and there's trash everywhere. And it's just not how, again, like not how you would, do a movie now he would be in this big laboratory and he would 
have like multiple catacombs of of all this engineering and computers and stuff and he lives in this building that's falling apart with a bunch of stuffed animals it's kind of amazing and, and mannequins yeah i think the only piece of equipment that you actually see in his place is like a dentist chair and his like egg boiler or whatever right. so what happens next just to kind of get through it quickly is deckard is sort of following his leads he has figured out because he went to a lady who sells fish that the scale that he found in Leon's apartment bathtub bathtub is not a fish scale but it is a snake scale so he's led to this guy named the Egyptian who makes artificial snakes and the Egyptian tells him that the only person who could afford his snakes is this club owner named Taffy Lewis. Before we go any further, I'd say that this interrogation scene with the Snake King is kind of the worst scene in the movie. I feel like it's kind of just clunky and just like, oh, go over here. And I mean, they tried to fix it in the in the final cut where like his lips actually match the dialogue. But yeah. it's, it's a little bit just like, okay, just have him go in there and strong arm the guy for the information. And it's, it's not a great scene for me. I like how it's shot in the distance. Like it's, you're sort of looking through this aquarium as he's interrogating him. It's also a little bit the character is kind of maybe a little questionable because he's called the Egyptian and he's wearing yeah. like a fez and ah, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, he's kind yeah. of doing that kind of thing. It's, you know, maybe hasn't aged as well as some of the other stuff. We have to talk about the Esper, though. Like the, the best piece of detecting he does is look through the photograph for all that stuff, which is badass. Deckard has this photo enhancer where he can feed photos into this computer thing and can basically perform magic with it he looks in 3d yes yeah like like now we're in 3d somehow and he can like go around corners and like perspectives actually change and i remember even as a young man watching this i was like what's going on like how is like that perspective shift is so confusing for a long time i had no idea what he was actually doing well he he zooms into a mirror and then goes to the right of the mirror and that so he sees a different reflection from a different perspective in the mirror right but it looks like there's planar shifts where there's there's stuff in the foreground moving in front of the background yes in 3d and like what is that photo even supposed to be is it supposed to be roy sitting there or like i never have been able to sort of figure out what the photo is roy is sitting in the bathtub and then zora is on a couch in the mirror behind the whoever took the photograph and what he catches is that she's got this tattoo on her neck that's distinguishable but in the original cut it doesn't even look like the actress that plays zora and then when he says give me the hard copy it's different image than what he had on the (laughs) esper and so there's like a ton of mistakes that thankfully they fixed i think in the final cut, but I remember it, it just added to the confusion where you're like, wait a minute, what? Like, what's he doing? Do they fix it in the final cut? I feel like it's pretty much the I same. I think they fixed if it. If they do change it, it's still a confusing scene. But it's cool. <laughs> yeah, but it's cool. It's definitely cool, yeah. It's got these analog noises, like when it magnifies yeah. things, it sounds like gears are clicking and working in this machine. Who doesn't want to talk to a computer while drinking Johnny Walker on your couch? <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, that's pretty cool detective work, which, by the way, Harrison Ford demanded be put in the script because Hampton Fancher supposedly had Deckard as a detective who does no detecting. And, like, literally, I think that's why they got David Peoples in there because Harrison Ford's like, look, 
I don't do anything in this movie. I just walk around and run into people. And so like they actually had to feed that into the script for him. That's what I was saying is like he's he's actually kind of not that great at his job. He's not a detective. He's a Blade Runner. He kills uh, replicants. A Blade Runner is a mix of detective and killer. Like that's what he's like upon detecting any new replicants. Like, yeah, he's got to find them. That's why he hires him because he's like, you're the best. You'll be able to figure this out before Holden or anybody else could. How many did he actually kill? Roy Batty died on his own and, and Leon got shot by Sean Young. He's kind of batting a little low below average, right? He's only a one man slaughterhouse. <laughs> so he figures out that uh, that he's looking for this woman with a snake tattoo. So he ends up at Taffy Lewis's club. And while he's there, he's getting kind of a little loaded and drinking these weird drinks that have like like sea anemones in them or something gross. I love how he can be bought off by a drink. He's like, buzz off. He's like, have a drink. And he's like, okay. And he stops it and like questioning him it's, it's hilarious. do you guys remember when i think it was the final cut came out and there was the the trailer for the final cut that was playing on tv and in theaters there was this shot of the dancing girls and the hockey masks yeah and everybody was like oh my god it was like the highlight of that trailer yeah. is that the only shot that's actually added into the final cut because that's the only thing i notice being really different is there's a shot of jason Voorhees' sexy girls I think it might be. That was Taffy's Club. It was like the, these new Jason Voorhees dancing girls at Taffy's Club. It is the most memorable part of it, yeah. I think there's like a, a shot of, of the craning up and seeing Animal Row. You know, that, that there's a few scenes that are like extended, but it's it's not that much as, as you'd think from the final cut. That was a definitely a highlight from that trailer. Something you'd never seen before. It is very sexy, and their movements are so weird. Yeah, they're just like, make it weird. <laughs> I want to go to Jumbo's and see that. Like, also, it, when we're in Taffy's Club, you never see any of the acts. You know, you see Deckard's ex uh, his reaction right. to the snake lady, but you don't see anything. Apparently, that was supposed to be a, a like a stop motion thing, and it was wisely abandoned because they were like, it was supposed to be Oof. like Zora and a snake, a stop motion snake, and I was like... Oh my god, that would have Hearing about them. that, I'm like, oof, like, yes, thank god they cut that. What they didn't cut was the announcer announcing uh, Zora's act, and the announcer says, watch her take the pleasures from the snake. <laughs> I mean, that just says it all right there. But that's why you see his reaction, He's, he kind of has this like, repulsed look, and he kind of turns away. But in between there, he's tried to call Rachel and uh, uh, get her to come out and hang out with him at the club. But that's not the sort of place she's going to hang out. So she doesn't come. And there was a little joke in there when he does the video phone about like how expensive it was. I think the total call came out to like two dollars or something. Audiences were like, oh, my God. Yeah, I remember at the time everyone would laugh at that because it was supposed to be 25 cents, right? And the video calls a dollar. And or I think at the time it might have even been less. Was it 15 cents a 10 call? 10 cents, yeah, yeah. Give me a dime. Drop a dime, right? right. Wasn't that the one yeah, it was? Yeah, it was yeah. 10 cents. So he sneaks backstage and he tries to meet Zora, who is played by Joanna Cassidy. Now, Joanna Cassidy is an actress who I have really enjoyed in things over the years. I really like her a lot. She was the mom of uh, one of the characters in Six Feet Under, and she was like really oh, good yeah, in that. Yeah. And she's really got a great sort of physical presence. Deckard is sort of playing this character who's like some kind of like whistleblower or whatever. The dork voice. I love it. It's so funny. I'm from the Committee of Moral Abuses. 
Zora is like, you know, I don't know this. What would you call her? Uh, she's, you know, she's doing sex acts with a snake in front of people or whatever. She's like a, bur- a burlesque. <laughs> dancer kind of yeah and she's like covered in these like giant sequins that wash off and stuff and he's following her into the dressing room and looking through her stuff for clues or whatever and she's meanwhile like showering and then she she goes into like a a hair dryer and her hair's being like blown in this blow dryer and then she comes out and she's putting on like these mad max boots which are pretty awesome like she's getting into this sort of like S&M gear or whatever while he's talking and then she's figured out that he knows she's a replicant and gets the drop on him and she gets him to try to put on this like brassiere thing while he's doing that she like checks him in the stomach and then like karate chops him in the neck and then she like gets his tie and she's gonna strangle him and while she's doing this, she's making this psycho face that yeah. I just love. Yeah. It's so funny because as, as an actress, that's not really what she would go on to be known to do. Like, she's not like scary. She's kind of like flaky and fun <laughs> totally, and stuff. Right. But she it can really be scary. And she's, you know, she's a tall woman, so she's pretty intimidating physically. Well, she plays it really well because Bryant says she's Beauty and the Beast both. That's such a terrible line. Yeah, but I mean, like, you know, when <laughs> she she embodies that, you know, because she turns into a, an ass kicker at, at, the, at this point. So you see why you said that. Her outfit is, is amazing and, and it works. The clear vinyl raincoat. Yeah, the clear vinyl. And then and then for the end of the action scene, it, it pays off even better. And it's just it. This is one of my favorite action scenes in in the film, for sure. As he's chasing Zora out, this was one of the things that I remember most like on the back of the the video box and really wanting to see this movie because it had had a still of the street where he's chasing her. And I think in that image, you had like an old car from the 50s. You had some random extra that looked like Sid Vicious. And it just looked like grimy city. And then there's like some future things. And then it was like, man, I want to see that so bad. Totally. And this is where you really get to see a lot of this world. You get to see the the population and the people because it's really crowded. So he's chasing Zora through this crowd. This is where the famous... Hare Krishnas are in there because he has to kind of run through them, which was sort of a big joke that lasted forever. Hare Krishnas were the bane of society in the late 70s and early 80s. (laughs) But I mean, it's great because she's like running over cars and everything. And she's in these crazy high heeled boots. And it looks like she really does it. Yeah. And then he's got to go through like a bus and you're getting like the street noises and the street automated street responses. You're getting the don't walk. Don't walk. Yeah, just the absolute chaos of it. The audio is crazy in this scene. But And you you still track everything, though. That's what's so great about it is that even though you're confused and it's just the right amount of confusion, claustrophobia, but then you still can track where he's following her. And oh, now she's over there on the other side yeah. of the bus. It's just a masterpiece of, of directing and, and art direction. And there's always something cool to look at. And the sound design, it's just everything's blaring at 10, but still working with the story. And it doesn't go off the rails. And it's, you know, like if Michael Bay did this, it'd just be a confusing mess and not exciting at all. But Ridley Scott keeps it on the train on the rails even though it's going at like fucking 150 miles an hour. And it's it's so great. It feels like it's going 100 miles an hour, but there's a lot of moments where she's just kind of stopping and waiting to see 
if right. he's still chasing her. And so there's pauses in it too. And it just works. It feels like you were saying in the beginning, Seb, it just feels real. She hides in like a little underpass at one point and then he sees her. You're sort of lost for a minute. Like, oh, where did she go? Yeah. Oh, there she is. He finally gets some sort of a clear shot of her at this sort of, I don't know, like a shopping center or something where they've got some kind of like snow Christmassy display or something. I don't know. There's like yeah. fake snow going on. And she goes charging through a series of plate glass windows as he's firing at her with his super cool giant gun that he has. And he's, you know, hitting her in the shoulder and then he hits her a few times and she's smashing through all the glass. In the original versions, it is really, really clear at a certain point that it is a stunt woman. Yeah. And that she does not look at all like Joanna Cassidy. The wig is totally off. It's really unfortunate. Like you can kind of let go of it, but then there's this one transition where you see her sort of stumbling forward and you see a really clear shot of the stunt woman's face and then there's a cut to Joanna Cassidy running mm-hmm. like a medium shot and her hair is totally different like it's so jarring that you're like wait a minute am I looking at a different person like is he shooting a different person I don't get what's going on and the final cut fixes this by doing some face replacement which you know now looks a little wonky but it's still much better they did the best they could at the time it, it might not age well but I feel like they put in as much love and care as they could it looks better than stunt woman's face way better way i applaud the effort it's not like that shouldn't have been touched george lucas you know this is like yes fix this you know like you have the tools now do it and it's such a beautiful scene i feel like this is another juxtaposition where the vangelis music really just cuts through what should be a horrible terrifying moment of harrison ford blowing a, a woman away in the back yeah and it makes it kind of hauntingly beautiful yeah it, it's haunting and beautiful and bluesy at the same time and then makes the snow working and, and just i always that that set piece with all those like the neon rings and the snow i always wish i had a room like that just to hang out in it just it looks like a weird nightclub stashed somewhere in a mall so much neon and apparently in the in the final shot of zora lying on the ground like ridley scott took like over an hour just to place the mirror and glass shards so that the shot would would look perfect and if you look the origin kanji sign is is reflected like perfectly in the back of that shot as well and it's just like man yes take an hour and and set it right because it just looks so good well, unfortunately, though, when the cops come and they flip her over, Joanna Cassidy moves her eyes, uh, and you can clearly see she's still alive. Do they fix that in the the new version? It seems like an easy fix, probably. It's a kind of a nitpick, but I definitely notice like she like moves her eyes. Thanks, Sebastian. Now I'm gonna see. That. <laughs> it's a cheap trick, but there's also a heartbeat at the in the bottom of like mix of this whole thing which Ridley Scott also used in in the chestburster scene in Alien it's kind of like a cheap trick but it it always works man it's always so good when you have something like that pounding in the background and adding weight to the scene yeah, Stanley Kubrick used it in The Shining yeah exactly one thing I do kind of like in the theatrical is that we get a little voiceover from Deckard about how he feels bad about shooting a woman in the back yeah you get a little bit of sympathy for him and he sort of relates it to Rachel like that could be Rachel or whatever which is going to play into the next scene because 
then Gaff and Bryant show up and they basically are like, yeah, you're doing a great job. Uh, now you, you've only got like whatever, four more to go or whatever. And, Re- <laughs> and Deckard's like, wait, no, three. And they're like, no, that Rachel one that you interviewed, she took off. We don't know where she is. So you got to kill her too. All right, bye. And then they leave and then immediately Leon shows up and starts fucking up Deckard like over by the sanitation trucks or whatever we get some good Brian James here you know how many years do I gotta live like uh, four more than you or whatever yeah it's great throwing him around and being really scary I love Harrison Ford agreeing yeah agreeing with him and be like nothing is worse than an itch you can't scratch and he's like I agree even though his face is all bloodied up and you're just like yeah you know when my brother used to beat me up I'd be like I agree you know and you try and be like keep keep your humor about you while you're getting your ass kicked and so yeah I can relate it's a really good Harrison Ford getting his ass kicked scene I always notice when Harrison Ford whips out his gun and Leon knocks the gun out of his hand you notice a jump cut there I kind of love it though is it a jump cut when his gun goes flying yes because it's way faster than it would be and they just took out a few frames but there's so much going on in the background that you're like oh I I noticed that but it's cool Leon's about to kill Deckard he's gonna gouge out his eyes with his fingers time to die but then he gets his head blown away by Rachel who's picked up the gun the sort of gore effect of the wound suddenly appearing on Leon's head has always been a little disturbing to me I don't know why because it just pops just flips up it's just like (laughs) yeah yeah But yeah, Rachel saves Deckard. They go back to Deckard's apartment. I've always enjoyed the way uh, Harrison Ford gets the blood out of his mouth in the sink. That's always been a favorite of mine. The detail that I love is the first shot of him in the apartment when he takes a shot. The vodka shot. And then you see the blood fall into the shot. And apparently that was Harrison's idea, but it's just shot so exquisitely. And that's for me, really beautiful. Yeah. One of the moments where you start to fall in love with this movie, because there's all these cool little details that you can, you pick up on repeat viewing. Yeah. That's one of my favorite moments too, is him taking the sip out of the shot glass and having it fill up with blood. If you're going to say something is slow, this part to me does feel a little slow where he's like washing his face and taking the blood and like, all right, I guess that, that could have been, sped up and and edited out. It's also a weirdly constructed sequence because he's trying to mitigate his wounds and they're having this sort of conversation about, well, if she runs, is he going to come after her? And he's like, no, but somebody will. But then he gets his booze and he goes and passes out. And then she sits down at the piano. It always kind of weirded me out. Like when she takes her hair clips out and now she's got beautiful curly hair. She was obviously wearing a wig and maybe that's her real hair. I don't know, but it's like completely different type of hair. But, you know, it's a weird scene because they start the scene together. Then he goes to sleep and then she plays the piano and then he wakes up and he's like, I heard piano music in my sleep or whatever and she's like i remember learning this when i was a little girl or whatever and then he's like you play beautifully and then he tries to kiss her and then she doesn't want him to kiss her and then she tries to run away and we get a little bit of a kind of rapey thing where he goes after her and shuts the door and then throws her against the blinds and then forces her to... He starts dictating to her how she should handle him. Probably hasn't aged that well. Of all the scenes in Blade (laughs) Runner, this is probably not the one that's aged the best. It definitely hasn't. The 
the rumor is that I mean, apparently Ridley Scott has taken full responsibility for this scene. Like a lot of people thought maybe it was Harrison because Harrison and Sean Young, you know, he was like, you know, an aged professional at that point. And she was just, you know, a, a wannabe actor that with her first role and, and not very good, maybe. But apparently Ridley Scott wanted to date Sean Young and she had rejected him. Oh. And so he kind of made it a little bit more rough, rapey than it rough than it needed to be. That's the rumor I heard, you know, yeah. So, uh, but I've, I've heard him either on the commentary or in something saying like, yeah, that was my fault. That was my fault. I shouldn't have done, made it so rough. I just, you know, everyone knows it didn't age well. It's, it's not a very romantic scene. The, the Vangelis music tries its best to get you to be like, no, it's sexy. Hear the sax. <laughs> she is into it, you know? And like, and I think that's what I went with as a kid. And I'm like, no, 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 it's okay. There was a bit of moment there where it was unsure, but they are both into it and, and it tries its best, but it can't really recover from what is a, a very rapey scene. It would be okay if it just went to where he closes the door and doesn't leave or let her leave the door and then she lets him kiss him or something, because that would be sort of in fitting with the sort of noir kind of thing. You know, that sort of sexual dynamic would play out a lot in older 40s movies. You know, if you just dialed it back so he's not throwing her right. up against the blinds and then telling her, like, put your hands on me. That's where it goes too far, I think. After this, we go back to the Bradbury where Roy Batty has shown up at J.F. Sebastian's place because Pris has called him, I assume. J.F. Sebastian pretty much figures out that they are replicants now and, you know, he's talking to them about how, like, he designed them or whatever. And they have this moment of sort of relating to each other because J.F. is suffering from um, an advanced aging disease where he's aging too quickly. So they're, you know, they're relating to each other. They want more life and he's aging too fast. And Pris sort of shows off by putting her hands in the, the, his boiling egg boiler and throws him a hot egg. And like Roy's playing nice with JF and he's sort of cozying up to him and Pris is sort of hugging JF with her legs and stuff. But it's all being played with this sort of menace at the same time. Like, you know, JF is pretty fucked. And I think JF <laughs> kind of knows he's fucked, but everybody's playing it like we're all friends and we're going to do this nice, friendly thing together. He seems so fragile in the scene. Like yeah, he's, poor he's guy. just scared. He's like a scared little mouse. Well, at first he's just emasculated that like the hunky boyfriend showed up. Right, and he's right. Like, oh no, yeah. like fuck, I, I am <laughs> I am not making progress here. He's like, fuck. And then it turns out like they really want to do bad things and I just feel so bad for him. But we have to talk about the iconic raccoon eyes that she throws on herself. Oh like, yeah. I mean, yeah, she's airbrushing raccoon eyes onto herself, yeah. which is pretty amazing. But yeah, I mean, I just love the dialogue here, just the way it all sort of is calibrated and you know the the way Daryl Hannah is saying like we love you JF and like she's kind of talking like one of the, his toys she's like wrapping her legs around him so she's still using her sexuality with Roy right there which right. is putting Sebastian in this horrible situation where he's like freaked out of both of them at this point but she's like still arousing him and Sebastian, this is the moment where he lifts up those weird eyes and goes, we're so happy you found us. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, that's, that's, that's so weird humor moment that Rucker Howard does with Roy Batty so well. 
I will say this, Roy's wardrobe is a little troubling because he's got these like super high-waisted pants that he's walking around in. I mean, it is the future, so who knows? Maybe that'll be a thing in 2019, but I guess we'll see. His coat is dope. I don't know about his the, the stuff under the coat. His coat is dope, though. I love his coat. And his hair is awesome. It's like the perfect platinum blonde color. Apparently, this is the one part where Hampton really couldn't get on board with what Ridley wanted, and I think David Peoples had to write it, was this weird get me in to the most secure place in the world yeah. by playing chess. And, you know, and I agree it doesn't really work, but like they set up so many weird rules and, and juxtapositions that like, oh, the streets are so crowded, but Sebastian lives in this totally empty warehouse, like, you know, building that like, oh, maybe there isn't a lot of security and JF Sebastian can just get in through this way. But it, I agree that this is... a shaky plot mechanics at best but the chess using the chess game i kind of like it just because it's sort of clever at least it's yeah. i i can sympathize it's not a battle scene or like a picking of a lock it's something new so yeah i get that it's not like the matrix where they go into the lobby and they're blowing everybody away you know what i yeah, mean like yeah. that would be the like really not fitting in this movie version of that right, scene the sledgehammer version yeah i do agree of course it doesn't totally make sense that JF would be able to just walk into the Tyrell building and get in their elevator with this creepy dude next to him and go <laughs> go all the way up 1000 stories or whatever it is just to like hang out near the apartment to then talk to Tyrell about oh I want to come inside to play out the chess game you're having to do a lot of work to sort of justify it but I kind of like it just cuz it's so strange and surreal and he's like whoa what milk and cookies keeping you up at night jf yeah well okay then come right into my apartment come right into the most exclusive place in the whole city let's discuss this game and how i fucked up and like yeah right like they are granted uh access into tyrell's uh super dope golden bachelor pad this guy's apartment looks like nighttime with liberace he's got 500 candles surrounding this huge canopy bed with this white, silky, puffy night robe and these huge Coke bottle glasses. His costume is so outrageous. It's it's one of my favorite costume pieces in the whole movie because it looks absolutely ridiculous. And yet somehow it sort of like works on him. The glasses are really cool because they're sort of multi-leveled. So he's like somebody who can see things on different levels. You know, he's so smart that, yeah. He they're just, like well, trifocals. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. There's like three angles to it. So it, it just fits his face and, and the character really well. And it, I feel like Ridley Scott sort of channeled this in in The Emperor in the in Gladiator, you know, where yeah, yeah, where yeah. Uh, Joaquin kills again his father. Totally, you know, like Ridley repeats himself a lot. There's there's a scene in Black Rain where uh, Michael Douglas finds like a sequin from a woman's dress that leads him on to detect something else, which is a total ripoff from Blade Runner finding the snake scale. So this is what I mean, where like yeah, Ridley Scott can sometimes repeat him repeat himself and repeat his themes but the conversation that they have is really great depending on which version you watch yeah. batty yeah. wants either more life fucker or he wants more life father for whatever reason he changes the line in the final cut he says father 
And I don't think it's just to take out a swear word. I think he just thinks it's a better line. Yeah, they do different takes for like TV or something yeah. like that, which right. they used to do in the 80s a lot. So I, I guess really thought it was dumb at this point. But I kind of like how rebellious like fucker, you know, I mean, it, of course, it makes more sense father, but I prefer fucker. He just says fucker so well that kind of miss it. It's like, fucker. Exactly. And yeah, so they have this great conversation about how Roy wants more life, but Terrell's like, well, I, you know, I couldn't do it because if you do this, then this mutation happens. And he's going through all these reasons as to why it's just not going to work. That's when he goes like, but you should appreciate the time that you have. You've done all this amazing stuff with your life. The flame that burns twice as bright burns half as long. I've, that's a line always has resonated with me. And I remember. So great. I have always remembered that line too. Like if I'm staying up too late, like I'm going to stay up all night and finish this work. And and then I always remember that the candle that burns twice as bright burns half as long as like, I got to go to bed. Troy, don't go to bed. The lesson is burn brighter, man. <laughs> You're the prodigal son. <laughs> So ultimately, Roy just can't get more life for himself and Pris. So he decides that that's nothing that the god of biomechanics won't um, let him into heaven for. And he crushes his maker Tyrell's skull. When he first grabs his head and presses in, you hear the skull crack. The sound, yeah. is the, oh. the, the foleying is really effective. You're like, oh, that's his skull. And then he takes his thumbs and puts it into his eyes. This was one of those moments when I was a young person where I'd be like, yeah, and then he puts his fingers into his eyes and then this blood pours out. It's like, that's the, the <laughs> thing that, that you right. tell your friends, like, you saw Blade Runner? What happens? <laughs> At one point, this guy takes his thumbs and puts it in the dude's eyes. And he... when you're a little gore hound, this is the most memorable thing that happens in this whole amazing but movie. But also kissing on the lips was, was a pretty crazy like concept back then, too. You're like, whoa, this what? This is pretty much why this film was like a hard rated R's, this one scene, basically. Yes, and it left people with an icky taste in their souls. I do kind of wish that JF had gotten in the elevator and like taken off. He yeah. has plenty of opportunities to get the fuck out of there. And like, he's just kind of sees Batty kill Tyrell and he's like, oh, and then runs off. It's like, dude, you should have started running a long time ago. You could have been like all the way down in the street by now and you'd be fine. Seriously. They added some ADR from Roy where he's like, I'm sorry, Sebastian. And I think that's only in the final cut. It's not in the theatrical, but they finally give Roy a little bit of sympathy where he's like, I'm sorry, Sebastian, I got to take you out. And I'm getting hung up on this. It's probably just because I relate to JF Sebastian because his name is Sebastian yeah. and, I, and I feel bad for him. And he has a lot of action figures. One thing I never really picked up on until this most recent viewing is that Deckard drives a normal car that's on the street. He can't afford a sweet spinner. That's only for like the super cops and like the rich people, I guess. Because we get a shot of him going through the, uh, that tunnel in L.A. Yeah, he never flies. Yeah. It's really just the tunnel in L.A. <laughs> like, Yeah, as it gets closer, you're, you're like, those are regular apartment buildings right there. Yeah. And just like, yeah, it cuts right before you get a good look. Yeah, it's the most unfuturistic thing in the whole movie. Like, that's just how the tunnel looks. It's always looked like <laughs> that. It's how it looked in 1982. Ridley Scott was trying to keep on the side of realism when he was like, all right, so flying cars, who would have them first? 
medics and the police. And so that's like he posited that in 2019, we'll have flying cars, but only police and, and medics would have them. So he was trying to remain grounded. So like not everybody was flying. When Deckard is sitting in his car and the police spinner comes down and is like, what are you doing here? Get out of here. This is where Deckard finds out that uh, JF Sebastian is dead and he basically now knows to go investigate the Bradbury. But what's cool is the setup of the scene. You see like these street people just like moving around like, you know, one of them's like a little person or like they're both little people. It's just these kind of like grace notes where you're getting sort of a glimpse in the mm-hmm. world at, an- at another scene earlier. There's these like Asian women on bicycles riding towards the camera. With all these burn barrels and stuff. It's, it's like a visual all on its own for no reason. Just like you said, just for world building. So Deckard is at the Bradbury and he's moving really slowly through the building and we're really kind of soaking in how dilapidated it is and how the puddles are everywhere and the Vangelis or Vangelis score at this point. Gellis. The Van Giles (laughs) soundtrack at this point is doing this really cool, just sort of ethereal like bells sort of sound and we're getting the sound of the city you know, that rumble. Well, the rumble. And then they also, Oh, the spotlight streaks thing. Like where it's like, whoosh, or the, you mean the Asian music? Yeah. That, that is just so haunting from the blimp. And then there's that other, that other sound that sounds like a meowing cat. Yeah. Yeah. The batty howl, but that's not. Yeah. It's like Roy Batty's howl, but it sounds like an, an animal. Yeah, it scared the shit out of me. Wow. It almost sounds like uh, Brett making the sound for Jonesy in Alien. Oh, yeah. Yes. Maybe it is. Maybe he pulled it from Alien and stuck it in there. There's so much going on in terms of atmosphere and style and everything, and yet there's so little going on in terms of action. But I feel like at this point it's all really working. By modern standards, like nothing fucking happens in this climax. It takes like five minutes for him to get from the bottom of the of the building up to where Pris is, and it's a, but it's a masterclass in just like the looks and set design and and tension building. But you're right. I guess modern audiences would be bored, but like I love it. Just the sound design. There's like haunting like gusts of wind that go by, and you see the spotlights shining through the windows, and it's it's just so cool. And, and you can just luxuriate in this movie endlessly. When you say something like when it's all style and nothing happens, like I feel like the end of Apocalypse Now is a perfect example of all style and nothing really happens, but it's magnetic and you can't look away when he finally decides to kill Kurtz. It's like the door soundtrack. It's the lighting. All he does is get up, walk up to him and then chop his head off. Yeah, that is pretty similar. But it's it's amazing because you can't take your eyes off of it. But the, there's no conflict. He doesn't really take out anybody. He doesn't put up a fight, but it's just done so dramatically and with such flair that you enjoy watching it. And like I posit that this has a little bit more going on as far as conflict, but great filmmaking is great filmmaking. And if you have everything, you know, at A plus and the music kicking it and the and the cinematography, you know, as an A plus too, like you, you can get away with it. Don't get me wrong. When I was saying that, I wasn't saying it to be derogatory towards the movie. I love it. I mean, I think it's so great how little is going on and how captivating it is. You right. know, like 
I feel like this is something that's completely missing from movies now. Now at the end of a movie, especially if it's a big budget sort of sci-fi thing, we've got to have like 10 battles and all these different climaxes and climaxes upon climax. And this is just kind of like two major things happen. The first being that Deckard takes out Pris. And the way this whole scene goes down is amazing because he enters into the apartment and he enters into this doll room or whatever where there are all these dolls or whatever sort of toys that jf sebastian has made and like some of them are going off so you're getting like <laughs> like clown dolls yeah, and everything so creepy yeah it's the best creepy doll scene that's ever been put in a movie and so many people have Absolutely. tried over the years to like get the last word on creepy dolls but it's like This kind of is the last (laughs) word on creepy dolls. I agree. Pris has sort of put this veil over herself and she's stock still. She's got the raccoon airbrushed eyes. She just looks like a complete mannequin. Daryl Hannah does a great job here of just being completely still. And there's, there's not just dolls in this room. Like there are actual other actors in there moving just a little bit like the ballerina. Yeah, 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 yeah. Stuff. So, she totally blends in with like two or three other people who are just posing with these other teddy bears and stuffed animals and toys and things. And the concept is, was already built in there with like the, the little munchkin dolls that he had, you know, because they would run into walls. It was obvious that these are all sort of like rejects that he built that don't work right. Yeah. And then so like, you know, when you see them, like they're stuck in these weird little loops and the, all they can do is do this. And then the little laughing guy stuck laughing and so like that what totally adds to the the creepy factor that you're talking about sebastian but it but it makes sense why it's it's happening so you kind of understand it subconsciously don't we get like a shot of her like eyes sort of like moving really quickly and then stopping yeah there's a close-up on her eyes yeah before he gets to her yeah yeah she like rolls them back into her head and then comes back down and it's a great shot she kind of goes into this rage mode too and she looks totally different when she kind of becomes this feral animal all of a sudden when she attacks him the wig changes and it, it all gets like <laughs> like this yeah he like goes to pull the veil off of her and then she just attacks him kicks him like across the room she eventually gets him in like a headlock or a pelvic lock leg lock yeah which yeah. is you know and she's wearing just sort of a leotard or whatever so you know, Harrison Ford's face is right there, right in the business. And she's sort of like boxing his ears and stuff. And Now, in the theatrical, she didn't grab his, his nose and pull it up, right? Uh, yeah, in the international cut has the most violence and I think has like the longest of, of the nose pull. Yeah. But like apparently Harrison Ford was like, no, you got to get in there and just do it. Because like she <laughs> is, there's no faking that. I mean, he, she just reaches in and just yanks him and i think the gymnastics fight is a really cool idea obviously they couldn't really do that much with it and like a lot of the the stunt doubles were like men that were like put into leotards and and had to do these like jumps over and over again because 
Ridley Scott wanted them to like Simone Biles it like a thousand times over so he could get the right shot. It is a kind of weird fighting style to like throw somebody down and then go run all the way to the end of the room and then do a whole bunch of right, flips exactly. in order to then. <laughs> I think Jim Cotta is the only other movie with it, right? Like... <laughs> Jim Cotta. <laughs> it's one of those things that's visually super uh, interesting to look at, but not right, strategically not the best move. And it doesn't really work out that well for Pris because while she's flipping around, he manages to shoot her. And this is probably the most disturbing moment of the movie where she's been shot and she's sort of over in a corner, just thrashing around, screaming. And you were sort of getting this. Yeah, that fucked me up as a kid. This like replicant in its dying throes or whatever. Daryl Hannah's just really letting loose with the screaming and he shoots her again and then. Finally, she dies in slow motion. Apparently, her death scene in Kill Bill was was sort of uh, homage to that. You know, when they pluck out her eyes and she goes wild in the in in the trailer. But she has that weird dead look where she's got her tongue sticking out, and it's it looks really disturbing when she's dead. When Batty comes in and sees her, he kisses her on the mouth and he shoves that tongue back in with his own tongue. You ever notice that? Yeah, I did notice that. Yeah, it's some kind of really disturbing uh, sexy death stuff but yeah batty comes home and he sees that things are in disarray and he and deckard uh, enter into their sort of final game of cat and mouse one thing that's going on all throughout this last cat and mouse is batty's like taunting him like are you the good man the police man <laughs> how does he know his name he calls him deckard i'm sure he would know the name of the guy who's out trying to hunt and kill them. Yeah, I mean, they've seen him poking around. They've been talking is about that public him knowledge. And, I yeah. mean, who told them? Leon figures out who he is. It's just one of those questions where people are like, it's another, you know, oh, he knew who he was oh, because he's whatever. a replicant too or some shit mm -hmm. like that. Anyway, I'm just saying it's it's a it's a detail that goes unanswered and just like adds fodder for that argument. Deckard's creeping along this wall that's got water running through it and it's like, you know, outside of uh JF Sebastian's apartment, every other unit in this building is completely decrepit and and it's like falling apart as they're having this chase. It seems like the uh the whole building is starting to crumble. Right, like you think the floor is going to like fall out from under them at certain points. Batty bursts through the wall, grabs Deckard's hand and with a gun and pulls it through and then like breaks his fingers for every uh, one of his crew that he's killed. No, not for Leon. He doesn't like Leon. <laughs> I was like, poor Leon left out, man. Couldn't use another finger. Well, he only does it for the women. Yeah, he does it for the women. He's hosed before bros. <laughs> Yes, I do love that. Yeah, yeah. He's like, this is, I'm going to even the playing field. This is fine. Because like, he's completely, he's just playing with him. And he knows he's going to die. He's just having fun. Yeah, exactly. And he even lets him get a shot at him through the hole. And he and he gets him. He, like, yeah. he nicks Batty. Yeah, he just doesn't give a fuck. He's like, no, it's all good. Keep your gun. Let's just keep doing this. Having the villain have the complete upper hand. Deckard is is really just trying to stay alive and and to wait this out. Like it's one of those climaxes where it's not they're not duking it out and they're not like punching each other and rolling over each other and falling off cliffs together and it's just Deckard trying not to 
get killed before Batty dies. As Decker is sort of like trying to, like Troy said, wait it out, or he's kind of trying to get out of the building or whatever. He's just trying to get away from Batty, basically going through all this decrepitude. And at one point he like stops in this like bathroom to reset his fingers while he's doing that. We're seeing Batty look at his own hand and it's doing that sort of fist curling thing. You know, he's sort of losing control of his own muscles or whatever. And so he pulls out this like rusty nail or like spike or something out of a piece of wood and then just jams it into his own palm to sort of steady his nerves or whatever. And so for the rest of the movie, he's got this big, giant, rusty nail sticking out of his hand. Deckard is just kind of trying to like climb his way like uh, up to the roof basically is what he's trying to do. He ends up in this other sort of apartment. He just like climbs up like the bookshelves or whatever that's there to get to like a hole in the roof. Batty's like howling like a wolf and like chasing after him and it's basically be kind of become like a Freddy Krueger scenario where the killer is stalking the hero and taunting them the whole time. Rutger is so effective here. I remember as a little kid being like petrified. I thought this was you know, not expecting like this level of scary in this movie. And it, it really freaked me out as a kid. He's also stripped down to these like tighties, these like bike shorts. Yeah. But bi- yeah, bicycle shorts. So he's he's looking very fit in this scene. But at the same time, yeah, it's like he is completely terrifying, but he's also just sort of like completely vulnerable and like almost naked. And he's just sort of tearing through this building, howling and stuff. I feel like this is where they do some of the the work for the end while showing uh, when Deckard runs away from him and just kind of like clamors his way into a room that's full of doves. And then I remember after reading the book being like, oh my God, there's like a room full of doves here. That That's like... So much money. If this were the the universe right. of the book, Deckard would be like, oh my God, this is like a million dollars here. But like, he obviously fears for his life. So he just doesn't give a fuck and runs away. But this also just sets up. It's not so cheesy when Roy gets the dove at the end because they set this up here, you know, and like in a lesser movie, it would just be like, oh, there's a dove on the roof and just have him grab it for the easy symbolism. But like, I like that they do this like, 10, 15 minutes beforehand, they're like, there's doves in this place. And so, you you know, it's it's not so out of place when it when it finally comes. They earn that dove, goddammit. <laughs> yes. So Deckard climbs up onto the roof and he's like, he figures he can make it to this one side of the roof where it'd be easier to get over to the next building. But then Roy bursts up through the roof, blocking his way. Isn't he heading towards like a TDK sign or something? Yeah. Back in the day, TDK used to make cassette tapes. All our mixtapes were on TDKs. But yeah, no, he can't jump towards the TDK sign. So he goes in the other direction, which is a lot further of a jump to try to make. And he jumps over to this adjacent roof, but he doesn't quite make it. And he's sort of hanging on to the edge. So while Decker is sort of struggling with his like broken fingered hand, trying to hold on to this edge of the roof, Batty picks up his new pet dove or whatever and then jumps over to the roof and miracle of miracles he grabs Deckard's hand right as it's about to slip and he just lifts him up right onto the roof to safety plops him down on the roof and they have this really kind of nice moment where they just sort of sit together and Batty explains to Deckard 
all the amazing things that he's seen, like he's seen moonbeams glitter in the dark at the Tannhauser Gate and the shoulder of Orion. It turns into this sort of metaphysical poetry. I believe he only came up with the cherry on top, which was tears and rain. I think he chopped up, he cut down the speech, which was most of it was in was in the script, but then he chopped it up and then said tears and rain, which is just the absolute cherry on top of the whole thing and makes the whole thing work. And it's amazing. The farewell cue by Vangelis is just out of this world. It's so good. It was so atypical of a science fiction film, especially the one that's has like trying to have action in it, like a chase scene like this to, to end on that note where they just sort of settle. Right. Mm-hmm. It, it felt kind of amazing. I remembered loving it even as a, a kid. I just thought it was really cool. And it's, Again, stylish, and I was really moved by it. Yeah, me too. And as I get older, it just gets more and more meaningful. Yeah. <laughs> and like you're saying, Troy, it's a, it's such a good way of, of subverting the audience expectations, but still paying off in a moving way. You know, it's not just like, yeah. oh, we're just going to, we're going to fuck with you. And this is like, no, it's just like, it's a twist, but then your sympathy totally goes to him. And, and apparently... It's Deckard's last action is spitting at Roy, which is like makes him want to save him. Also, is that like Deckard never gave up until the last moment, and apparently that is this impetus to save him. And then, of course, you have the Christ figure with the nail in the hand and the doves and all that symbolism. But it all works. Yeah, they've sort of arrived at this moment too, where it's like, well, we've both done our jobs. Right. Like we're done, and and we don't have to end this in a bloody battle because we've completed our journeys right in the theatrical cut we get a kind of ham-fisted narration about how i don't know why you saved my life (laughs) it is clunky yeah (laughs) i actually feel like that last bit of narration was a little bit better than some of the previous uh, voiceover narration i feel like uh harrison ford was was giving a little bit more probably because it was the last bit and he was gonna he was gonna be able to go home want to go (laughs) home (laughs) as a kid i appreciated it because it really sort of drives home what happened there yeah exactly you're otherwise you'd be confused and be like wait why did he do that but i mean as an adult i don't need it at all so then uh gaff shows up on the other roof and now he can speak perfectly good english so i guess he was just fucking with deckard this whole time and uh, he, you know, encourages him to go get Rachel and run off. And he tells him, too bad she won't live. But then again, who does? And so Deckard goes home. You know, he's creeping back into his apartment because he's afraid, I guess, some other Blade Runner is going to be there to kill Rachel. But Rachel is still alive and asleep. And so they rush out to the elevator. But as they're getting to the elevator, her heel kicks up a little origami unicorn. And uh, one thing Gaff has been doing throughout the movie is making these little origami animals. So we know Gaff was there and did not kill Rachel. It's a nice moment, but it's kind of weird that they give you these two moments of Gaff basically saying, it's cool, go run. Like we already know he's going to let him go because he was on the roof. <laughs> I think we could have just had the unicorn. We didn't need Gaff to yeah. to give him the okay. And in the final cut, which is basically the only thing you can see now if you don't have the Blu-ray set, that's the end. They get in the elevator and then the elevator door closes and then we slam to credits and the 
pulsating score of Van Gyle's music. But that's not what you'd see if you saw the theatrical or if you watch these other cuts on Blu-rays because in those cuts we get this last scene where suddenly we're in sunshiny world that we haven't seen before and we're seeing footage from The Shining, from the opening of The Shining. But Deckard and Rachel are driving off in a car somewhere. They're like in a normal car, too. It's like a Toyota Corolla or something that they're driving up Highway 1. They're going to San Francisco or something. And uh, he's just talking about how, turns out, she's actually got more life. She's a special model that's going to live for a long time. They still don't know how much time they have together, but they're going to love every minute of it. I appreciate the sentiment. Well, it's fine. It's fine for them running off together. That's kind of what it looks like they're doing. But it was this slapped on footage. For sure. Of these yeah. snow capped mountains that made zero sense in this. Right. Yeah. Like, why wouldn't everyone be there already? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. It should have been like bombed out or something. And Because yeah. you've spent the entire film establishing this dystopian world. And then suddenly, like, if you just cross the Los Angeles border, everything's beautiful. It's stupid, but at the time when I saw it when I was a kid, I wasn't like, that ruined everything, you know? You're like, right, yeah, it doesn't ruin it, yeah. It's right before the, the credits roll. It's it's pretty minor, but it's ridiculous. I remember when I first saw the director's cut, I was like, oh, that's way better. You know, I mean, right. it does yeah. feel better to just have it end. It's just funny to think that, like, oh, that little bit is going to, like save everyone's feeling about this movie and like walk out of the theater no like, it was the narration you know, it really doesn't it really doesn't matter like it like it didn't do any better because it was there you know like we've analyzed so many movies here where the last scene is the thing that kills like a good movie or something like that this just goes to show that you can leave people with an upbeat ending and it's not going to make them love the rest of the movie either. So the opposite isn't true. Like, right. All right. So the budget for this was $28 million, which in 1982 was a shit ton of money. I know it doesn't seem like a lot now, but back then that was a lot of money. This was expensive. And it only grossed $32 million in the U.S. And I think that figure is counting the re-release. Yeah. Total gross for Blade Runner is $32 million in the U.S. Period which is not a lot of money. Worldwide, I guess it made $41 million. So, you know, it's cleared its budget over time, and it's such now considered a, an immortal classic that no one fucking cares. I mean, it's in the Library of Congress and shit. Blade Runner has redeemed itself for sure. But I'm still going to ask the question, why do you think it failed in 1982? Well, it's kind of funny. I've seen this movie a lot in the theater now since the re-release i saw it you know in what is it 92 when the director's cut opened and then i saw it again fairly in 2019 when they showed it at the uh, the million um the million dollar hotel i think which is across the street from the bradbury and so like it was like, like an iconic spot that was in shown in the movie and you could also like go see it and it was funny when i saw it you know when you see movies with um with a, a big audience like something like um jurassic park or back to the future there's always like this communal sense of like everybody's enjoying the movie at the same time and like oh people laugh at this part and people cheer at this part watching blade runner in a theater 
was sort of antithetical because it's such a solitary movie that you're like, no one's cheering. And like, this movie isn't better watched with like a, a bunch of people. You're just like, we're all having a solitary experience together. And it's so strange. So I feel like that is part of the reason why this isn't like some kind of blockbuster ride where everyone has a good time and there's like these fun ups and downs. You know, you're supposed to watch it by yourself, drinking whiskey late at night and luxuriate <laughs> in it, in the loneliness and the and the icky feeling of it. And that's what it's best at. And not a lot of people want to do that, except weird, arty film nerds like us. And so that, I think, is, you know, the main reason why, you know, and you were you pointed out, too, that dystopian movies almost never make a lot of money. Like people don't want to envision our future as being dystopian and terrible something that people aren't going to respond to unless it's the hunger games yeah i guess i don't know well we'll have to analyze that and why that worked but um maybe it's just j-law but um and it's also a very european and an asian feeling and looking movie and so i feel like that didn't help with the american box office and that might be part of the reason why it did better overseas and um one funny tidbit is that uh when ryan adams Fuck him, you know, he's been canceled and all. But, like, apparently when he got a divorce with Mandy Moore, he pointed to the fact that he was, yeah, she didn't even like Blade Runner, and that's why I divorced (laughs) (laughs) So so that kind of just shows how, like, you know, I mean, like, cool people like Blade Runner, and then, like, there's other people who just, like, you know, like, don't like its icky feeling. And so that's, that's the way it is. And, you know, but it's pretty much is my favorite movie. Like, I keep coming back to movies and being like, maybe that, maybe Ghostbusters is my favorite. Maybe Empire Strikes Back is my favorite or whatever, you know? And then I keep coming back to this and being like, no, this is my favorite movie because I can return to it again and again and I never get bored watching it. There's always something new to learn, something cool to see. And this has the proper pace, too, to enjoy and just luxuriate in in the cinematography and the feel of the movie. And when I was watching... Um, Koyana Skatsi, the uh, documentary about that movie, the filmmaker specifically said, there's so many movies where there's there's no room for you in the movie. And I'm like, oh, that's a really interesting thing because like those movies have no dialogue. You have to bring yourself to the movie. And I feel like that's what Blade Runner has a lot of room for you. Blade Runner, it has so much room for you. <laughs> Troy, do you have anything to add to that? Just seems like a pattern in, in 1982, right? Like, we did the thing. You're not going to do the 1982 speech again. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not. But it, the thing was a downer. And the movies that seemed to do well in 1982, they were more feel-good or more exciting and more action-packed like Star Trek II. So this was slow. It was already on the surface. It's what? It's a detective movie. It just doesn't... I can see how this wouldn't really have any kind of a a draw just based on its premise Mm -hmm. on top of it being like really moody and dark, which didn't seem like people were running out to go see movies that were either uh, dystopian downer moody because there was a lot of other movies in 1982 that were way more exciting and were way more of a spectacle as far as action goes i feel like this movie pulled a bait and switch you know they really marketed it with harrison ford he's coming off star wars he's coming off of indiana jones it's this sci-fi movie you know from the guy who made Alien, and the marketing made it seem a lot more action-packed than it was. And I think that 
when people went to see it, the initial reaction was, you know, this isn't what I thought it was. And I think the word of mouth was kind of bad at that point. You know, I remember seeing it in the theater. I think my family was kind of like, what was that? You know, like it just wasn't what people were expecting. And I remember the initial sort of critical reaction and stuff was sort of muted. You know, there were a lot of people who are like, oh, it's really beautiful and stunning and stuff, but it's slow and confusing and, you know, that kind of reaction where people just don't quite get it. And I think audiences were just like, oh, this isn't what I signed up for. And I don't think they've ever really come around to it, not mainstream audiences. And I think that was the big miscalculation with Blade Runner 2049 was they were like, oh, well, now everybody loves Blade Runner now. And it's like, no, everybody doesn't love Blade Runner. Just because it's a household name doesn't mean that everybody it's their favorite movie. Right. Like people like us who are like movie geeks, sci-fi geeks or whatever, we worship this movie but not everybody else does. There are still lots of people out there who think this is a boring movie that's too arty or whatever. There's just a lot of people that are just aren't Blade Runner fans. And making a sequel to it was a financial miscalculation because they just thought like, well, everybody's turned around on this now. I mean, I think that happens a lot with properties as they think like well now it's become a cult classic so everybody loves it now I, the same thing i think happened with tron like tron legacy wasn't a bomb but it wasn't a huge hit but they were thinking well everyone's come around to tron in the last 30 years it's like no they haven't no nope. yeah. <laughs> they still think it was a kind of weird movie that they couldn't wrap their head around just like this movie i think blade runner really is just for film fans and for hardcore sci-fi fans yeah no i think you're right on that plus it was just a slow burn like you were saying in the in the beginning i think the that word got out that this was nobody really came and told their friends like you know this was amazing it's telling that the the opening weekend numbers were actually pretty good the opening weekend was like six million dollars or whatever which for that time was a good opening weekend but then it's like it dropped like a stone yeah. and i mean that might have had to do a little bit because there were like other big movies coming out around that time but still if people had loved it it would have plowed right on through that's true yeah yeah it's because people went to it and they were like what is this this is not what i was expecting i wanted han solo indiana jones fighting robot people all right, guys, I'm going to go have some noodles and uh, jam a rusty nail through my hand and take the pleasures from a snake. <laughs> nice. That once corrupted man. Jiggity jig. That about does it today for Tentpole Trauma. If you like what you heard, check out our social media presence on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just look for Tentpole Trauma. That was easy, wasn't it? If you like us, hit subscribe and leave us a sterling review on iTunes, if you dare. If you really like us, head over to Patreon.com and get involved in one of our fabulous tiers. You'll be glad you did. Want to communicate with Tentpole Trauma? Send an email to tentpoletrauma at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And who knows, one day you may even get your email read on one of our shows. Well, thanks for listening. 
and we'll see you real soon.